0: Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer.
1: Hello and welcome to Open Apple. This is episode 48 for June 2015. I am co-host the first, Quinn Dunkey, and with me as always is co-host the second, Mike McGuinness. How are you doing, Mike?
2: that's me co-host the second i'm doing all right quinn how are you
1: good good those are co-hosts in no particular order yeah, that's right that's alphabetical you
2: know <laughs> sure
1: d before m q before him yeah so uh it's pretty exciting uh time here on the show because we're rapidly approaching kansas fest season uh kansas fest of course being july 14 10 19. and uh, so if you're not registered already you better go get busy with that And uh, since it's Kansas Fest season, uh, we have a special guest on the show to talk all about that.
2: Yeah, so we're joined today by uh, Tony Diaz. try it again. Joined today by Tony Diaz, who has been, I think he's been to every single one of these, which is 27 or 28 now uh, running. And he's definitely been involved uh, with the committee and and planning. And I know that's a, a lot of hard work that... Generally, we don't see because it comes off pretty smooth every year, and there's some sponsorship going on there. But Tony's here to talk to us, and after, after we talk Kansas Fest, we'll talk about some other cool stuff that, uh, that he does. I know he's got a huge collection of, of absolutely fascinating and unique Apple hardware, and there's some great stories, I'm sure. So let's get right to it.
3: Hi, this is Gary Little, author of Inside the Apple IIe, and you're listening to the Open Apple Podcast.
2: Hello, Tony. Hello. Uh so I, I guess we'll we'll start with uh what we hit all the uh, all our guests with um before even Kansas Fest what was your what was your intro to the to the Apple 2
4: probably a disk with Zork on it <laughs> and the system master after my brother came home with a uh Osborne 1 portable way back when when they first came out and I looked at that and I said oh this is neat I started playing Zork on that and then I had gone to school this was over the summer I think then school started up and I had discovered that there were Apple II's you know another room and I said oh I went in there I said do you have Zork and yep we do (laughs) and that was the end of that so (laughs) I started figuring out how to hack into it modify it change the words and that was that I think it was 81 or 80 or whatever that was. Zork has claimed many a young mind I'm sure. Yeah that and the fact that you could break into it and start messing with it, without even needing to use the disk drive or anything. It was always, you know, you can't find, you know, maybe the Commodore. I think some of the older
1: Atari's 8-bit stuff were like that, but nothing now. You
4: can just break in and use.
1: So then how did you go from that sort of early introduction to the Apple II to Kansas Fest? What, uh, do you remember your first Kansas Fest? I was away at college,
4: and I see this thing about, it says A2 Central Summer Developer Conference, and I'm like, hmm, what's that? Looks interesting wasn't sure if I was going to go, and probably a couple weeks out, I decided, okay, another friend down here that we were working on collaborating software publishing and some other stuff at the time said, well, he was going to go, but he was going to get there from some other direction and then drive back. So I figured, what the heck? Okay, I can fly in and I'll drive back with you. And he goes, yeah, we can do that. And uh, that was number one, and I flew in to Kansas City International. Three days, and we left, and I think I had just about as much adventure on the road trip home. so for the next few years, I ended up driving back and forth and uh I hadn't flown into Kansas City ever until April of last year when we had a gathering of another sort. All the years I've always driven in well i should let me rephrase that I've flown in in my own aircraft to the uh private airports, but not into mCI
2: that's right, you've you got Apple Two Airlines. I think yeah, A2 Air, A2
4: Air, yeah. Because
2: <laughs> you, you've flown I, some attendees in occasionally, so.
4: Yes, but I'd flown in for probably 10 years, and I've been driving for another eight or nine now, and part of the adventure for me always was just getting there and getting back and having a break in between.
2: You said the uh, first ones were, were three days, and, and obviously there have been a lot of changes over the years, and um, I know like the Apple, I think Apple itself, used to come out to they would send representatives and I know they they stopped that a long time ago but looking back any big memories from from those early uh early shows
4: well the first one was yeah you know, obviously first one but it was two real days of stuff and uh a lot of people knew people knew each other but never seen each other so there's a lot of that going on for the first time you know it's a lot a lot more of that happens nowadays because mm-hmm. some people go years without ever seeing somebody and then finally oh you don't look like you sound. <laughs> well back then the only thing we heard was so <laughs> we didn't we didn't know what people sounded like anyway. But it was basically two and a half, three days of sessions all held at Avila College at the time it was still a college. And the following year the event was preceded by Apple IIGS College, which for comparison's sakes, you might as well say it's like Worldwide Developer Conference or WWE. D.C. for the Mac. It was three days of Apple-centric, Apple presented information from the DTS department and uh, some other higher Apple II people of 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 ranking in that era would come over. So that was the second one. So you had three days of that, and then you had three days of Resource Centrals version, which is very similar to what goes on today. And then uh, after that, we went home. And the second year. They felt that it was so big that uh, I had to move the conference session portion over to another facility that was just across the valley, and at the time it was called NAMDA, or National Office Machine Dealers Association. But they had hanging projectors from the ceiling and giant screens and semi-auditorium-like layouts for several of the classrooms, and one of them was really big, and that's where they used to hold the opening and closing and common area stuff. So for the next three years while we were meeting there, I think we were the only ones that ever used those overhead projectors. <laughs> During one of the lunches, we'd go take a walk. And uh, since the sessions were all in the classrooms, the various Avila classroom buildings, some uh, exhibitors also had some other stuff set up in different classrooms to come and look at later. When you went to the ProDev, then you could go to the ProDev classroom that had a bunch of computers in it. You could use the hardware, check it out. And there were a few rooms like that that had, I want to say, breakout sessions, except they really weren't breakout because they didn't intend for you to stay there while everything else was going on. But it was, let's, after hours, come and check this stuff out. Well, one of them had a really unique piece of hardware in it. Many people have always wondered if it ever existed. And I have to honestly say, if I had any inclination to know that I would never, ever, ever see it again, I would have been so tempted to stuff it in the FedEx box and just walk home if I had to. (laughs) Nah, you know, I can't really get away with that. But we walk upstairs and looking in each room to see who's where and what, and open up a door, and what is this in the corner over there? It looks like a Laser 128, except it's on steroids. It's bigger. Laser 128-looking computer that was about the size of a Mac Portable. So it was a bit bigger. And that was the Laser 2GS clone. Oh, that wow. was wow. the only the only one apparently. It was a one-off. And if you're familiar with the Mac portable, the way the Mac portable is laid out, I specifically remember it was looked very much like the second generation laser with the uh curved edges, except that how the Mac portable opens where the back top half flips off and then the keyboard comes forward. So take the laser, you flip the back up, you can see down inside now, there were two or three peripheral slots horizontally up against the back. It had all the same ports that the laser 128 did across the bottom. Two three and a half inch disk drives stacked, sticking out of the side, instead of the five and a quarter. And then if you picked the keyboard up and lifted it forward, you could see the rest of the motherboard. And there were SIM slots, or DRAM slots, I don't remember which, down there. And we're all looking, okay, what's the CPU in here? I mean, the thing was open. We were just two of us were in there. That was it. And I picked it up. I'm looking under the bottom, and it slipped out of my hand. It went clunk on the table, and we're all looking around like, "Uh oh!" <laughs> <laughs> and I picked it back up again because I wanted to see if there was one of those little doors under it, like the metal door for the ROM. And I just I wanted to see and. I realized, no, there's nothing down here, but there was also no external slot that I remember because they were inside, and you could put three or two or three full-length peripheral cards inside the machine. Then we spotted an empty socket. I go, I see what's going on here. The rumor was it would not be a 2GS unless you happened to put a ROM in there or a Amiga Kickstart-like disc, but it was just simply a fancified A2. There, sure enough, there was the... uh, an empty 28-pin ROM socket. Hmm. Well, what's that for? And we were going, well, if we go back to the other room and get a 2GS ROM, I wonder if we can put it in here. But no, we didn't do that, and that was the last I saw that thing. And uh, I did take some pictures back in the day. Again, never really thought much of it. I probably have them someplace because I've got all kinds of printed photographs from back then, but I have been going through those things for years and still haven't found most of them. But I know they're in here somewhere. If I find pictures, great. If not one of these days, I can probably sit there and 3D draw it up again. But <laughs> no, that was the most—that was probably the most surprising thing ever. It was during lunch, and we didn't feel like going to lunch. I'm not going to play with hardware. The only other time that that, that was uh, apparently out was in Apple Fest in Long Beach. It was in the center cubicle area of Central Point Video Technologies' large booth, and you had to get an invite, and they would bring you in there, and they'd show it to you. So
1: it hadn't been in very many places, but that was the so that's probably the this, the most unique standout ever. That's amazing. I had no idea laser was ever working on a GS clone. Yeah, yeah, it existed. It was in my hand for about 20 minutes. <laughs> we were Should've looking at it.
2: Walked out. <laughs> and
4: never and and there, we were the only ones in there. I said, these, nobody locked the room or nothing. You know, it was yep. just, you, people would leave. That's, that's the way it's always been over there. You pretty much." They never really had a problem with, with the stuff. And so yeah, so anyway, that was the probably the most unique. But anyway, so they brought in Apple IIGS College, and then the following year, they added yet another activity. It was called the Apple Expo. So when Apple Fest had wound down, and I think 91 was the last Apple Fest, or 90 or something was the last Apple Fest. It was a Long Beach one, which, yeah, it was the one where they, the, the laser was, which was the second after that. The original founders of the original Apple Fest series that started in 1983 and went through 84, 85 before being discontinued and revamped for fall of 87 when the 2GS was released. That was the hiatus. was two or three years of that. They actually put together another show and called it Apple Central Expo. They also had Apple Expo East and Apple Expo West. So they did one in San Francisco, one in Boston, but there were three, I think it was three or two or three in Kansas City. So you went from 2GS College starting on Tuesday, Tuesday and Wednesday, part of Thursday morning, if you were there already. Meanwhile, Thursday, the regular Kansas Fest attendees were checking in, and, their set, and those regular sessions started Thursday afternoon and into Friday, and carrying on late Friday night. So that whole deal was really basically two days, and then Friday night, as a vendor, you would, if you were a vendor at the Apple Expo, you would set up your, your display, and everybody would move to the Apple Expo for Saturday and Sunday. So you had a two-day expo, and that was open to the public. Tickets were $15, and they just show up. So that was, that's probably the beginnings of the vendor fair. That's why I always did that on a weekend because it was always open. That was three years in a row, and then that whole Apple Expo thing, about the time, 93, 91, 92, 93, about the time it kind of fell apart when the whole Apple II, you know, I have to say it went pretty quickly. Their show, their last one they put together in San Francisco, which was quite a gamble. If you look at the quality computers, QVision videotape from that era, they have a lot of interviews and whatnot from the show floor at that Apple Expo. And sadly, trade shows are really expensive propositions, and generally you don't make money at them. You're doing it for visibility. But with the size of the A2 market, you really need to make money to justify going, because it wasn't a very big market. It's still, you know, in a lot of ways, it may even be slightly bigger today. And that's, I know that sounds strange, but because of all the retro computing interest and whatnot, but it really fell off. And if you went as a vendor, you expected to at least break even or cover your costs. Whereas if your electronic arts at Macworld, you didn't care because you were just handing out your slick flyer sheets and making sure everybody saw your name. So these guys got the San Francisco Civic Center. And part of the deal with the trade shows, again, with money is you always had to use the union and their people to move your stuff in and out. And a lot of Apple II vendors, smaller people like us, didn't like that because I got to pay extra for someone to do something that I can perf- do myself, and it's especially it's a, it's at ridiculous rates and and whatnot. So, they managed to get the hall without union requirements, and they always remember me saying that was one of the things. If you don't, you know, did you you got it without a union? Oh yes. Okay. So we move in, and Friday night we're at our hotels, and watching the TV news, and they said something about the Flower Power Pride Festival this weekend in the city in san francisco and i'm thinking that's why they got this place because no one's going to want to come in the city sure enough the newscast at 11 o'clock if you don't need to go in this downtown tomorrow do not go so attendance was very low and on sunday it was even worse to the point where half of the place was packing up at noon saying forget it we're out of here if you're familiar with trade shows, you basically can't pack up early as part of your contract. Everybody has to be open until the last minute. Well, people basically didn't care because, as far as people were concerned, the contract was voided when the promotion for the show was awful. And I want to say under a thousand people total had tickets, and a lot didn't even show. It was basically a failure, and they they disappeared off the map after that. '94 was the I conference with Resource Central. That was Resource Central's last year when it changed over. And there was no more 2GS College. And there was no more Apple Expo. So it was down to Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And Saturday was a breakout day. Of Saturday was like our Sunday now. That was it. And in 95, when, early in 95, when Resource Central finally signed off the air, some of us kept calling Apple and said, have they scheduled? Have they scheduled? And is this, you know, time slot available? And we got it at the last minute. And, you know, a bunch of us called and Came together, and said we're going to have it anyway. I believe that was the year that was one of the f- shortest events ever. We barely got in. Ninety-five year Roger Wagner was speaking. It's a post-resource central event, and we had to check in to the dorm. We couldn't be in the rooms until 3 p.m. on Wednesday. We had to be out completely by 12 on Friday. It was almost barely a one-day because. At the time, the campuses were tons of soccer kids and all these sports camps and things were going on, and uh, we barely got in there. So after, a few years after that, we turned it back into three days, four days, and an optional Tuesday, and ran it through Sunday morning because we found that people liked to hang out on Friday, Saturday night after the movie and or whatever was going on. So basically, it became the first and last day where if you want to have extra time or come early, that's what they're for. And if not, you can show up on Wednesday and leave on Saturday. And uh, that's how it grew. But that was uh, real interesting that first year, the first year without Resource Central. And pulled it out and pulled it together. And some of us, one of us put together flyers. And I printed out a bunch of stuff at work and sat here and folded and stamped and stuff. And we ended up getting a mailing list from someplace. I think
1: Quality Computers gave us theirs. And it was just do what we can to get it going. So uh, has it been growing ever since? Or have there been ups and downs in between? There's been ups and downs.
4: For those who may remember Avila, the Avila dorms I always kind of thought were situated a lot better for this type of event. However, in the earlier years, we couldn't have done this what we did, in that we had the sessions in another classroom because they were pretty big. We had people on three floors of two buildings, so upwards of 300 were attending. And by first one, by 95, the attendance had gotten down to low 50 to 70 or something like that in that area. And after that, it had been dwindling and it never really peaked. It always felt like 50 was probably the max. One year, we got down to 27. And that was early 2000s when we figured, you know what, it's not going to last much longer. Well, then 2003 happened. Steve Wozniak, you know, we always answered, you always asked, you always send an email, will you come? Will you come? Will you come? And you always got an answer back, no, 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 no. Well, we got an answer back that year and it said yes. And I think all of us probably stared at that screen on IRC or wherever the heck we were, Delphi or whatever, and we just looked at it and went, Holy bleep! Now what do we do? We were supposed to have uh, a different keynote speaker that year, and I said, Well, I guess we're going to have two <laughs> because I don't like the feeling of giving someone the bump. I'm mean, going to talk to Richard Bennett, and he's like, Well, I guess Richard came with me that year and talked about it on the way and he says yeah I know I, it's only the guy that started the company <laughs> something like that but yeah I suppose he can have top billing you know it's just kind of <laughs> funny but Richard ended up talking as well but when the word got out that Steve Wozniak was coming registration went poof and all of a sudden I think we got up to like 60 close to 70 and there was a lot of people that had never come it was probably one of the years where there was the most newcomers ever the early years of, of the event it was raining in Kansas City like it was the second Seattle, constantly. One minute it was raining, one minute it was, you don't like the weather, five minutes later it's going to change. And then you go outside at night and it was lightning shows every night. I used to sit out on the swing porch or whatever if it was windy and watch the lightning late at night because it was miserable outside during the day. It was very hot and humid, like Kansas City mostly has been. Except in 2003, I don't know what happened, but it was subtropical type weather never broke into the nineties or barely did. If it did breezy with a cool breeze, we actually had meals outside on the big terrace and spent a lot of time outside. And it was like no other previous year ever. It was amazing. Mm. And we're like, we kind of joked and we said, well, this worked out real good because was like to be outside and we had a lot of room and tables with umbrellas type things and whatnot. It just, it was just really cool. So when, uh, 2013 rolled along and kind of got the surprise visit from Steve Wozniak again, as you uh, well know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was another year that we kind of had really nice weather, and I thought, okay, that's it. We got to bring <laughs> Waz back every single time because he's the one that brings the weather. But so, anyway, we got to bring Waz back that way we can have better weather. <laughs> anyway, so that was that that, that year that picked it picked up a lot, and then started the to uh, run down again. The following year after, after WAS was significantly lower, but still more than, I want to say it was probably in the mid-50s. It wasn't for a few more years that it got down. Low was 27 one year. And part of the way it worked is we needed to have a minimum of 40 people before we could have the event. So we wouldn't even open registration until we had 40 people that said, yeah, I'm going to go. And then we would cash the checks and do it all and say, yep, we're going to do it. Well, we had a little bit of an upswing again. The first year we were at Rockhurst, I think because it was a new venue, and the year before, 2004 being the last year at Avila, which had now become a university, and we come over the hill and we see the sign and go, it doesn't say college anymore. In fact, it says this big AU. What is that? They had upgraded their status, and along with that, they had realized... Their campus was becoming—I don't want to say run down, but it was showing deferred signs of deferred maintenance. And I got a call in early 2004 one morning from Avila saying, "We'd like to let you know that we're canceling your reservation for next summer. We're no longer going to have any summer camps. We need to spend time on our facilities, and we just can't do it when we have people in." And that last year we were there. We had the air conditioning breaking three times, and yeah, we could all agree it was not conducive to a uh, event like that. So we had a powwow, start looking around. Okay, where can we do this? Other cities, other venues. College campus is still the most logical type of space because if you do it in a commercial hotel, you really can't be hauling around in the halls all night long. And, you know, like we always said half of K Fest is always thought the juicy stuff happened afterwards, into the night, into the daytime. Back in those days, I don't think we slept more than two hours, if <laughs> that. And I think the two hours might have been in the back of the sessions, <laughs> as we used to call it, an experiment sleep deprivation. We'd go. We'd get there, and then the first night of sleep would be Sunday night at a, at a motel someplace else. <laughs> Part of the years with uh, 2GS College and Apple Expo, Genie people would come earlier on a Monday, and they'd have their annual meeting. And then the K-Fest people, the college people would show up for Tuesday and Wednesday, and so on and forth and so on as the week would grow. Well, there were a couple years there where it was so laid back at Avila that a few of us were there until the following Wednesday. They didn't care. You just put the key in the box when you leave, and that was it. And that was, we were the la- apparently the last uh, event, and so we hung around and did a bunch of Apple II stuff on our own for a couple years before uh, they started picking up a bit. But let's jump back a little bit also. I want to say 2002, after 9-11, was probably the deadest year on the campus. We had our event. It was pretty much the same as we'd always done it. In fact, that was the year we introduced the cookout, and I talked about I think I was the keynote speaker that year, or I at least had a topic on K-Fest of the past, which had this time had only been 13 of them. Anyway, I went over the first 10 years, but we were the only event that booked the campus that summer that actually showed up with the economy crash and the lull and all the other stuff that had lasted into the following summer. And the other thing I remember is motel rates were what the heck cheap. I couldn't believe it because they had to get people in them rooms had 20 bucks at some places. Nobody came. The following years after that, 2003 and 4, it was suddenly not as crowded as it ever used to be. It's all of a sudden people forgot about what they used to do. And when we first moved to Rockhurst is when we started seeing other activities going on around us. We had looked at some other colleges. One of them was university out to the east, about 35 miles out. The facilities were really good. The amenities were good. However, it was 35 miles out. That would have meant a lot of back and forth, or at least when we were in town, and we had that whole thing wired, because using the 435 loop to go back and forth to the airport was usually pretty non-congested traffic, It was because it was outside of the major city core at the time. No, we ended up pow uh, powwowing and uh, Sean Fahey had gone out and taken pictures of Rockhurst, and I believe some of the other venues we had chosen at other cities. People did the same thing, and then we sat and compared notes, and... We've been there ever since, and it wasn't for a few more years. Actually, we've, we've kind of figured out the downtown area and gotten to know it. But the early years with the, with the big green bus and the, looking for the Denny's, and I think that was the second Denny's I ever heard of in my life that was not open 24 hours. I think they found Steak and Shake after that and came back, and why would they go there instead? But anyway, that was uh, yeah, first few years of Rockhurst, and things will work out for themselves usually in the best. I think you know, we're going on 10 years, 11 years now, and I think we got it wired. So,
2: Now, didn't the uh, Mark Twain also make its debut at, at one of the Kansas Fests?
4: Yes. I want to say it was Avila. God, looking back on that, I can't believe it's been that long. But Gulf War era, the first Gulf War era, I had brought the one I have. It's actually kind of a unique uh, machine. There's we've we've Over the years, I think we can account for, let me see, I think five of them that are out there somewhere. Two of them we had, and a couple of Apple employees, and an additional one. And they would show up over the years. Well, when we got the machines we got, they were actually part of an original group of seven. It's a really strange story. It was an ugly divorce, and the ex-wife ended up with the stuff, and the guy that was supposed to have it was an engineer at Apple, but the stuff stayed at the other house, and she vindictively got rid of most of it, and the rest of it, got given to somebody else, a couple machines and an extra motherboard, and that's how we came into them, because someone happened to walk into the Gravenstein Apple II user group up there in Marin County. Joe Cohn is there at one end of the hall, you know, kind of like about the, as long as the hall at Avila and or Rockhurst, and he's looking down, and you can picture somebody with a 2GS under their arm, sideways with the ports facing backwards and the lip facing forward, except he's looking down the hall... And he catches a glimpse of something sticking out of the front of that machine. And he says, "Whoa!" Um, I'll be right back. And he just went straight down the hallway. This lady had walked in. Total computer neophytes. We don't know how to use this. We found this user group. We'd like to. We'd ha- like to have some information on it. And people are staring at it, going, "It's got the disk drive built into it. What is that?" No one had ever seen one. We'd always had the rumors of it. No one had ever seen one. And uh, Joe Cohn and I ended up with uh, the systems after putting together a fully loaded ROM 1 stock system and I put together a 66 or something other machine, <laughs> that tells you how back when it was, a full, fully loaded 486 and a Mac Quadra or a Centra 610 system so basically all the people that were involved got computers that were more akin to what they wanted to do and we got this other stuff So the two machines we have had the same motherboards in them, and all the other ones that we've seen show up out of the five five out there, the three other three, everybody's got this motherboard that has all the wires and stuff on it and the fixes. A few things were put together backwards, so they had to flip things around and make daughter cards and, you know, usual engineering stuff. Well, the the spare motherboard that uh, was with it actually had a few issues, but I sorted the issues out, but one thing was different about that motherboard. There were no wire hacks on it, no extra boards, and you held it up to the light, and it was laid out significantly different. Component-wise, they were still the same, but you could tell that the routing traces. And by looking at the board, the audio section, one of the complaints with the 2GS was always the disk drive. Tick, 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 and especially if you had a Unidisk, you could really hear it. And even in the Mark Twain, it did that, but not as bad. Well, this other motherboard, when you held it up to the light, you'd notice the entire audio section of the motherboard is absolutely isolated. Ground and power plane wise, and had filters leading into it. So there was no interference on that thing. That ROM 4, as it was called, or as we called it, had the best sound ever from a 2GS. And it also had stereo out the back. It had stereo digitizing in built in on the motherboard. The improvements were 1.44, the FDHD or Superdrive controller was on the motherboard, and the high speed SCSI was on the motherboard. So because they built these in, they removed slots 5 and 7 physically because you probably were not going to go use your card when you would disable something on the motherboard that was probably you you, you probably wanted to use the better version <laughs> you weren't going to put something else in there they had to do that because the power supply was wider because it had to be shorter because the disc drive and the hard drive were up front and the, the whole thing was a little bit more cramped inside so they made it all fit anyway this other motherboard was different from the other two again after I got it to work, I want to say the only other thing that had anything near, as, actually the two things that had the clearest sound ever were Suite 16 on BOS, which is uh, a short-lived era of just before the Internet Appliance stuff, which is today our, our version of the iPads and whatnot, another, another thing ahead of its time. BOS had dedicated hardware, and then later they ported it over to uh, run on New World Max and then eventually x86-type hardware. But at the time, there was a 2GS emulator for BOS called Suite 16, which is the, the basis of the Suite 16 we have today, which, again, is also a derivative of Bernie to the rescue, which was the classic Mac version. Suite 16 was the BOS. Bernie to the rescue was the Mac version. And uh, BOS, one of its things was multimedia. The sound that came out of that was amazing. If you needed to record Apple II output, that was the way to do it because it was blasted amazing. But second to none, the Mark Twain and the Future Sound card. If you put a Future Sound card in your Apple II, which was the most sought-after sound card ever, it was a $350 sound card. It had full onboard hardware to handle everything instead of making instead of using software to do it, and that was the one everybody wanted. So the Mark Twain was basically a Future Sound high-speed SCSI and a 1.44 drive built-in. And it was all activated by different versions of the drivers. If you put the high-density card driver in, it didn't work. But if you use a different one, it would. Nobody had the different one at the time. But anyway, that is the last version of the 2GS. The source code for the 2GS operating system and toolbox and whatnot that uh, has made the scene in the last few years makes a reference in the build script. talks about the ROM says to build the Mark Twain ROM because the Mark Twain had a single ROM. The ROM 1 and 0 had a single ROM. The ROM 3 had twice as much ROM content and had two ROMs on the motherboard, whereas the Mark Twain had a single ROM again because it was all the content put back in a higher-density chip. So if you look at the build script, it says Mark Twain ROM build, and then you can go back and look at the revisions and make it go back to build you the uh, by changing parameters. It'll build you the ROM 3 image with the two files, or the toolbox ROM 1 version with one ROM with the older stuff. Well, this motherboard that is modified that I have that's special is referenced in the source code there. There was a couple references to where this is the ROM for that motherboard. I said, what, are the, what is the irony here that I've got the motherboard that you can actually build that ROM for without having to mess with it? Because that was the last 2GS. That was it. And System 6 came out after that. The Apple II Ethernet card was uh, a project at the time and the SuperDrive card was a project. The SuperDrive card saw the light of day, the Ethernet card was declared done, and they decided they weren't going to deal with it, and I have a feeling part of that was uh, every piece of network hardware has a unique address in it. Well, the unique way that the Apple II Ethernet card did it is it stored it in a ROM, which meant every single ROM for each one of those cards had to be different. So that alone was a crummy endeavor. But, you know, it's all automated and they could do it, but that meant that every ROM was different, so you couldn't really compare them. You had to do a checksum in manufacturing. That just that wasn't, you know, it worked for beta and demoing, but anyway, I, that's my theory on part of that. This is, again, late 92, when they figured System 6, uh, or early 93, when System 601 came out, finally, uh, it was actually delayed for the Ethernet card and then when they finally said, okay, we're not doing the Ethernet card, they simply removed all reference to EtherTalk, Apple II Ethernet, and whatnot from the system software, called it the Golden Master, and shipped it. And that was in May of 93. And the Mark Twain's appeared, I want to say, we've, late 91, early 92 or so, is when they uh, showed up. When the issue of Shareware Solutions has, the, has a picture on a back cover of, of the uh, motherboard, and that's the quarter of the year that they showed up. So that was the last two GS and actually I take that back. If you remember the era of the L C, the two E card, the video overlay card, that year when the L C came out, ninety one, the Mac Classic, the L C and the two and the uh Mac two SI came out, a number of things were, were very different for Apple that year. They spent an enormous amount of money both on marketing and R and D and seeking feedback from the marketplace. For that Macintosh classic and LC. Things like they wouldn't do today because we have the internet and people and word just gets around bam like that. You know, like the guy that lost the iPhone in the bar and immediately it was everywhere. You know, this is the equivalent of putting a whole small town full of iPhones and saying, here, use these, but don't tell anybody about them. The small town in Oregon was just enough off the grid, small school. They actually had LCs and Mac classics in classrooms for three or four months before the product was finalized. So this is about six to nine months out, and they're getting feedback from the people, how they like, does it work, and they've worked all that stuff into it. So what I mean by the monumental change for Apple was they spent, I want to say, they had a big rollout, big huge fanfare, meetings in 28-something cities, similar to how Microsoft would roll out stuff, just it was huge. They spent an average of $750 per machine sold that year to get the word out on the LC, the 2SI, the 2E card in 92. Side joke to that is, they all say, well, Apple had done more Apple II stuff. They would have failed. I said, okay, maybe. Maybe somebody might have that opinion. You're entitled to it. However, if Apple hadn't have done any more Apple II stuff at that point either, I am more confident that that would have been true. Because Appleworks and the 2E cash cows that supported Macintosh development well into the mid-90s when they finally got it right and it finally started to grow, but anyway, back when the LC was going into schools and it had the 2E emulation, there was a poster and an ad campaign. One of uh, Apple's conditions for a machine in the box was it needs to be able to run the base system software that we are shipping now within reason. Okay, System Six, System Five, and even System Four really did not work on a 256. You could barely get it to load it on 256. You'd be lucky if it didn't tell you it's out of memory by the time the Finder came up. But if you put a 1-meg card in there, and that was Apple's largest official card they sold was a 1-meg, System 6 barely ran. System 5 barely ran. So the ROM 3 comes out with 1-meg on the motherboard. Now that fits into that barely runs. And by the way, you put this other card in there, now you got 2-megs. Now this pretty much works. That was one of the reasons for the ROM 3. The other reason was a manufacturing update changes and bug fixes and whatnot, things that were incorporated. But the ROM 3 was only apparently sold in North America, and uh, the rest of the country got what was left of ROM 1s or nothing, and then they had to import them themselves, because they simply weren't on price lists. After 91, uh, I believe, when the ROM 3 came out in the uh, fall of 91, I think it was. But anyway, back to the System 6. So, System 6 comes out, Ethernet card is cancelled, they take it out, and this is May of 93, and between summer of 92 and 93, the whole, it was whole multimedia push with video editing, video capturing, and they had a poster that was orange in the background that had Saturn, some planets on it, a Mac LC, a 2GS, and I think a 2E or the 2SI. Anyway, the 2E, it was either another Apple II, but they had all the machines similarly equipped. In other words, here's the 2GS with a video overlay card and here's what it can do. Here's the L C with the two E card and here's what it can do. And it was it was going after schools, as usual. But there was something amusing about that, because uh in the background, you know how Apple would you know, always had trinkets and stuff like out, you know, maybe an old art deco type globe, compasses, school books, things like that. Well, there was a book sitting in the back of that picture. A copy of Mark Twain. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was somebody's I'm not dead yet. <laughs> It never came out after that, but uh, yeah, that it was it was on there.
2: <laughs> one of the things that I look forward to every year when I go to Kansas Fest is the unique uh, hardware that you bring with you. The You've got the Golden Gate 2E prototype, and, and uh, I, you had a 3-plus prototype there one year. That was pretty cool for me, personally.
4: I hadn't even realized I had that machine in so long. I had gotten... There was a guy in... Uh, down south from here in the early 90s that uh, was fairly into Apple 3 stuff. And I've actually found him on Facebook fairly recently, but he had heard about my interest in Apple II, and he wanted to mess with the Titan 3 Plus 2 e-card. Well, he needed some Apple II stuff, and he wanted to get it to work. So he found me through user groups, a couple different user groups referred, and he drives up. We have a couple nights of totally messing around with stuff. And then, I get a call, you know, we talk back and forth for a while, and he had the three disks, so I copied a bunch of three disks from him. And I get this call, which seemed to be a somewhat standard thing over the years after that. He says, I'm moving, I have blah, 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 I need to get rid of this stuff, I want it to go someplace where I know it's, you know, if someone knows what it is, blah, blah, blah. you know, ah, that works. Well, that was my first real cash load of, please take this and save it. I think that was 90 or 91, and... That 3 Plus prototype was one of the machines that came. A whole bunch of original Apple books, a couple of system software packages that had never been opened. And he, I don't know where he got the stuff, but he had a fairly neat set of Apple III stuff. And the only thing he didn't have was this universal drive controller card that I still would like to get someday. That I'm pretty sure was set up for the fileware drive, which was the Twiggy drive that the Lisa, original Lisa had because there was pictures of an external unit, and that was supposed to be the common drive across the platform for the Mac, the Lisa, and the Apple II and the three. But the Twiggy drive was another engineering disaster, a great case of not invented here, we need to do our own. And it was a monumental failure to the point where it, when Apple finally threw in the towel and gave in, they said, get them all back and get rid of them. Give people free 3.5-inch drives for their leases. Completely change it out. It's free. Yes, the... The Twiggy drive had more storage, but the 3.5 inch drive was more reliable. And that's a whole other little story you could go out on. But you can look at uh, folklore.org and you can read about that. Uh, back when Waz was doing the Disk 2, the original Disk 2, you heard the folklore story again. Another uh, similar concept. Uh, you know how Waz was the IWM? The Disk 2 was a marvelous uh, accomplishment for the day. It was very simple, very easy to program directly from the computer. You had full control of it. Whereas the thirty four pin mfm interface that became that was introduced by shugard as the standard type of interface you didn't have as much control over it the drive did a lot you simply told it and waited and told it and waited one step between the commodore fifteen forty one which was practically a computer on its own the mfm drive was thirty four pin was little of that And then the disk two was, you need to do everything. So while it was good, it was also bad because when that means when disk two was doing things, you had interrupts and problems with, and things with, with the Apple two. But all those things were actually really cool idiosyncrasies because people exploited them to their best. And that was one of the coolest things about the Apple two in general was you could, you could find all these little idiosyncrasies that it did. You know, you look at the schematic, they gave you the paperwork, they gave you the list, ROM listings, and you look at it and you go, wow. And then, You'd do it on a machine, and it was ever so slightly different than you expected. But you know what? They were always like that, to the point where when they were early clones, where people were cloning it, hardware one for one, by the schematic, they weren't working the same way. They were actually not compatible because things would not work because little tweaks and fixes that weren't documented were the reason why things worked and a lot of unknowns. So the Apple II was a really unique deal. But anyway, the Disk II, in the era of you know, Shugart's making the disk drives, Building the, uh, SA400 drive. Shugard Associates 400. Five and a quarter inch, double sided, double density, 360K drive. The single sided version was half of that. And that's one of the drives that Steve Wozniak said, well, here, let's, let's, let's make, you know, he designed the analog card. He took their drive, took the big controller board out of it, dumped it, took the stepper motor control, ditched it, just left the, the, uh, motor control on the back. And design the disk two analog card and the controller. Twenty pins of simplicity. If you think about, go all the way to the last Macintosh that was ever sold. You want to say there's a little bit of Apple II and everything. The twenty-pin disk connector inside is electrically compatible from the original disk two to the first iMac that had the connector but was not included. Is electrically the same, save for just a few things like disk two or Unidisk 3.5. A couple of things, you don't plug them into certain machines because a few little bad things happen. But generally, this phase, the read-write, head-select, drive-select, everything is the same. So that set that standard all along. You know, Waz said, okay, we can do this, but I don't need that board. I don't need this. I don't need the index thing on the head. I don't even need the second head. I don't need any of it. Goes to Schugart and says, well, we want to buy these drives, but we don't need any of that stuff. Um, No, we're not going to sell them to you. you got to buy it like that. No, we don't need it. I'm going to take it out. I'm going to throw it away. don't want it. No, no you've got to buy them. Hem and Han, back and forth, and finally, I guess, uh, Shugart got uh, tired of being nagged and told his engineers, yeah, you know what, go give them ten of those bad drives over there. Ten of those that don't pass. Tell them, here, here, you can have these. And uh, Jobs and Wozniak go off and do their thing, and a few weeks go by, and nobody hears from them, and all of a sudden, they call back and it says, yeah, you know what? We got all nine. We got nine of them to work, but we got one that didn't work. And it's probably at the other end of the phone, it probably dropped. I said, "Wait a minute! What you got them to? Uh, 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 what did you do?" <laughs> I think Shugart learned a little bit from Wozniak, and the SA390 was born. And Shugart sold Apple the drive with a single head, and all the other stuff missing.
2: One of the things that I look forward to at Kansas Fest is stopping by your room or your uh, display at the vendor fair and seeing the various uh, prototypes and and unique Apple hardware. And one of the questions that that I always hear comes up is, how did you get all this stuff, Tony? So, Tony, how did you get all that stuff? (laughs) Okay, well,
4: going back on the Apple III story. For a while there in the early 90s, it just was really weird that it seemed like I would call October and November... The Apple II Discovery season, because every year about that time, I would somehow come across something. I believe, coincidentally, that's when the Mark Twain showed up, too, was the fall of that year. So most of the time, it involved a phone call, get up here, which meant get on the freeway and go to San Francisco, or get on Southwest Airlines now, or I came across this, and and, uh, I'm going to send it to you. And uh, I ended up with a Franklin Portable that was the shape of the the form factor of the Osborne one year. Now I've got three of them. Another year I ended up with an Einstein Apple II clone, which is a very interesting machine in that the CPU section is more like an IBM PC in the way that the main box is separate, the disk drive is duo disk like except it's two Super 5 drives and a slim aluminum box sits on top of that, and the keyboard is in a separate box, sits in front of that. And it's had a unique, deal where there was a big chunk of corner in the case that you could put a battery in there. So apparently the thing could be run with, I'm not going to say portable, but I believe it was set up that it had a built-in, the intention was a built-in UPS because the system was geared towards A&D, analog digital and data acquisition and whatnot. It was kind of meant more towards the scientific sector. And uh, there are other Apple II derivatives that are actually way more marketed towards that at the, the time, but this was one of them. That's what I'm pretty sure that was for, but so it was basically a, a hybrid between a 2 Plus and a 2E. And I got that. The how did you get this stuff? And then word would get around, you know. Send it to him because it's, he'll you know, he knows what they are. They'll keep it. It's not going anywhere. And over the years, they're right. I have probably cut loose something two or three times. And it's been <laughs> to very special people that know the significance of things. And it's usually something I've got more than one of usual rule was if I had one, forget it. If I had two, maybe. If I had three, you got a chance. If I had four, (laughs) we can deal. (laughs) And that was if they were all the same revision, because if they're not, we're going back to square one.
2: (laughs) Uh, We talked about Woz showing up uh, at Kansas Fest in 2013, and you had the, uh, was it the 2X board?
4: Um, That was in actually 2003.
2: Okay. I wasn't there in 2003, but I remember we were talking about um, it was either the, the super two or the two X forward. And I just remember when we were talking about it, was was like, somebody still has that. Yeah. Him right over there. He's like, wow.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Part of the deal with the two is two X, every new model, every new engineering version that was coming out. You always that was the two X because they didn't know it's like Boeing seven X seven. They didn't know what they were going to call it yet, but you knew it was going to be the next number in line, except Apple wasn't using numbers. They're putting letters after it. So they had like they'd used E and C already, so they had twenty four more <laughs> choices mm-hmm. if they were gonna do some more letters, unless they were gonna do a plus thing again, which they came back later, you know, the Mac two, Mac two plus, Mac two, whatever. Anyway. You know, so they were kind of predictable but kind of unpredictable. And two E came out. So the first improved Apple II, which was chip reduction, a component reduction, the Apple IIE. And discussion was super two. Two of them were labeled super two. But it was always the 2X, because, okay, what are we going to call it? Well, then that one came out, it was called the 2E, and the next one was the 2C. In fact, the 2C, was the code name was Terry and Lolly and a few other things, but it was referred to again as a 2X when storyboarding it. But the most famous 2X was also the another one like the Mark Twain that for years, you know, we always, yeah, there's a there was an Apple II that was going to have it had a 68,000. And it was gonna run Macintosh stuff, but it never, never came out. Fast forward now, '92. So I get a uh, one of those calls that's, you gotta get up here. Okay, I'll be up there in a couple days. I went, and got a Southwest ticket, hopped the plane, flew into San Jose, got picked up, taken into Cupertino. They're selling this house. And this is my first real introduction to holy crap, California real estate is nuts. And this is the early '90s. Okay. I guess the term that everybody might relate to is the shotgun house. Basically a long, narrow house. Very thin lot with a building, an outbuilding. It was like a garage. And these were early Apple employees, and the garage was the workshop lab, and they had a lot of stuff in the house. Well, they were selling the house because they were moving down the street to a bigger one. But the thing that I remember the most, yeah, they're selling this for $1.3 million dollars. And oh, and by the way, the people that are buying it are just going to bulldoze the house. So they want us to empty it now. I'm like, why? I says, oh, because that's the only way you can get a house up here now is to buy another one and build on a lot because they're all used up. (laughs) If you want to be in in the Silicon Valley, you've got to buy something. So that was my introduction to holy crap. (laughs) And I don't know what it's like today, but I can't imagine it's any. It's probably gone up and bubbled and burst and whatever. But anyway, get this call. Get up here. Got the stuff. Check it out. And sure enough, quite a few bankers' boxes, you know, assemblable cardboard boxes that you put file folders in. Quite a few of them, some of them labeled Apple Computer because they're reusable cartons that you'd send back and forth with stuff in them so that they wouldn't have to buy new boxes because they were used for internal, and and a lot of other stuff. Kind of going through it, we're not sure what we're going to do with this, but the end result was I ended up with about 25 boxes, plus enough to fill a layer of a typical Chevy van of the era. I got on the phone, called Southwest Airlines. You know, back in the day, you knew the lingo. You could call the baggage people at the back, even. You could talk to all kinds of people. Now, you can't do that anymore, either. So I, I actually managed to talk to the baggage handlers, and I said, what are the loads like on that flight going back tomorrow night? What would happen if I brought a few extra boxes? Because they didn't charge you extra back then. In fact, they really didn't have a limit, but they kind of sort of did. They just—it wasn't hard and fast. Two, fifty pounds, hundred dollars extra, plus oversized fee, plus plus plus. They didn't do any of that. They just kind of took what you gave them. And the guy says to me, well, "Right now, there's six people on that plane. So if you brought a bunch of stuff, they wouldn't even care, and it would give us something to do." <laughs> <laughs> so I checked twenty-two boxes, <laughs> <laughs> twenty-two tapes, shut file file boxes on the Southwest Airlines on that night, the night after that. <laughs> And uh, when you got back to San Diego back in that era, San Diego was one of the few places where they had the baggage claim area roped off, and you had to show your ticket stub to a Huntley security guard that was standing there watching. You know, Other airports, you just picked it up and left. And, but San Diego, you had to show it to somebody, and then they would tear the thing in half and keep it. Well, that was the most hilarious thing, because all these boxes are coming down off the belt, and I'm picking them up and stacking them, and stacking them, and walking over and stacking them person's running over their hands like no, no 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 what are you doing and the way that they uh they used the they did baggage stickers on them and some other stuff and the way they did it it wasn't quite normal to where I had little tear off stubs and things they just did it a different way they were totally clueless as to how can how did I get this many bags on the plane so I had to finally point out to them I said look you saw my boxes two other suitcases come down that ramp you checked them out I'm the only one over here and if you go to that ticket counter over there they'll tell you there were six people on the plane this is all my stuff <laughs> I ended up I got out of there with it that was that was the end of that but in the process of looking through all that stuff you know as we're opening a box looking at it and going oh neat wow holy crap cool this is amazing and having another orgasm I've you open the next box the next box the next box so I get into the one box I open it up I pull out a file folder I look at it I flip it open all I hear is it's best that that leave here and that's it And when I saw what it was and I heard that, I knew, I said, okay, I took that one, immediately taped it back up, and I proceeded to use it as a bench to sit on for the rest of the afternoon. (laughs) I said, this one's going with me. I carried that one on the plane. That was a cool box because if I'd had that box 12 years earlier, I think Kansas Fest would be free for all of us forever because it probably would have had several million dollars. It contained blueprints, diagrams of the MMU, the IOU down to the gate level. For the 2E, the uh, blueprints of the motherboard, the mechanical drawings of the case, all the cutouts, the various keyboard matrices, all the stuff for the 2C of similar nature, and then a whole bunch of engineering notes on when they were designing the 2E, the 2C, you know, here's what we found out about PAL, and here's the sample that the the, uh, chip manufacturer sent us, the sheet, and here's that, all this kind of stuff was in there. The patent for the IWM without a lot of the black stuff written over it. so basically the uncovered version. because you know when you saw the patent, you had to give them everything in, in plain English and they had to see it and then when it was time to uh, do it, you could annotate stuff out. you basically would cover it in black and then if the public saw it, that's the version they got to see. so they could see the in and out, but they didn't see the black box. This was how you proved your your, your design. And if it came down to a court thing, you broke out the real one alongside of it. So I had unobfuscated copies of the IWM. And one of the neat things that was in there in the folder was an IWM-based Disk 2 controller. So it was two 20-pin connectors, but it had an IWM on it. So one chip plus the 245, and that was it. I was like, well, that's a neat Disk 2 card. I wonder why they didn't make this. Because those IWMs were expensive back then. <laughs> it was still cheaper to make eight chips, to get the eight chips. But anyway, that was in there, a bunch of other stuff. I got 2C prototypes, uh, a whole set of 2C prototypes that time. And as the day wears on, they keep coming out of the house with more stuff. And we're divvying it up and going this way and that way. And the stuff that was more, I want to say mainstream, more common, whatever, Joe Cohn was getting some of it. Another individual, I I forget who was there, was getting some of it, like software, manuals and stuff, and then hardware and rare stuff and whatever, I was pretty much, it was going in my camp. And uh, that was kind of what we had agreed on before we got there. So, the afternoon wears on, and uh, he comes walking out of the house yet again with something. I see he's got a big static bag in his hand. And he says to me, Have you ever heard of this? Opens the bag and pulls out a motherboard. And I looked at it. I said, Is that the Brooklyn Bridge? Golden Gate, or whatever it's called. And he says, How did you know what it was? And I said, Pulled it out of thin air. But what I saw was a 2E-sized motherboard that had eight slots and two slots up front and a whole bunch of RAM chips, and the thing was jammed denser than the Mac 128 was with chips. I said, well, obviously it's an Apple II. I saw the word Apple II back there where it says Apple IIe, it said Apple IIX or whatever the thing says back there, okay? He says, yep, that's what it is. I looked at him, and I said, so how many of these are there? And uh, the finger wave points back down at it and said, this is it. And handed it to me. I think I was silent for quite a while after that, <laughs> just looking at just looking at that. Amazing. Hold it up to look at the light. It's a five layer board. This is nineteen eighty-four. It's a five layer board. It is all hand soldered. The bottom side has some wiring and it's all got flux and everything. It's all hand soldered. Got an uh, engineering sample of several custom made logic IC chips. It's like the MMU and the ILU, and about six others. We're all looking at it going, oh, oh, wow, look, there's two super serial card connectors right here. There's two of those 10-pin things that you put the pigtail on. Oh, there's a 9-pin over here. This one says mouse, so you can plug the ribbon cable from a mouse card on it. Oh, and it's got the 2E joystick connector. And I said, well, why didn't they do like the 2C? And I said, well, that's probably why they did the 2C later, but they made them both. This one had it breaking out. Oh, it's got RGB, so it had the digital RGB on board. The only thing it didn't have was disk drive controller. That was a standard card. So it was basically an 8-bit 2GS without an insonic and a drive and a smart port. For all intent and purposes, the machine was supposed to have an 816 in it, but it had a wired over 802 so that the machine would power on and go past a uh, startup. But put an 816 in it, it was better. But it still wasn't faster. The Apple III was still the 2 megahertz machine even up until then. It wasn't until the 2C Plus or the 2GS came out that there was a faster Apple II. But this Apple II was more cable, so we start talking about it. So was this really supposed to have a Mac processor in it? And he goes, no. In fact, we never made the card for it, but the plan was to have a 6800 coprocessor card. When I said there was eight slots, so there was two, eight slots in the back like a 2+, zero through seven. And then there was uh, two down the front where the auxiliary slot is, except they were almost like the size of the 2GS RAM card is maybe a few pins smaller. but They weren't 40 pin either. They were somewhere in between because the slots in the back are 50-pin, memory card is 44, I think, maybe it's 44 and 40, anyway. One of them was in line with slot 0. So he points it and he says, the CPU card would go from here to here, and it would let it it'd reside here. It would be going across these two slots. The idea was to make various CPU cards, and the only one we really thought about was a 6800, not 1000. Again, remember, the 6800 was one of the other choices of CPU that possibly was going to be used for the Apple II and became the 6502 and the DRAMs, and we all know how that went, because they were more expensive, they were a lot easier to work with, and boy, that flipped around. 6502 was dirt cheap and unheard of, and it was really fun to operate and work with, and it was one-to-one uh, cycle-to-process ratio, and it just was, it was a fun deal, so they, they were going to use that one. We all know how that went. Anyway, but this had the, the coprocessor card on it, and then it had an additional slot for more memory, and it had 128K of memory on the motherboard. So it was kind of feature set of a 2C, kind of. The 2C had the video, but whereas the 2C was basically a 2E with hardware added, like the Mark Twain was a 2GS with hardware added, 2X or Golden Gate, you turn this one on, it said uh, GG2E, so it's Golden Gate 2E, was a departure hardware-wise, similar to how the 2GS was another departure in terms of we're going to make this, it's going to be compatible, but it's going to go off in a new direction. And what that direction was, was uh, say that Morgan Davis would have been really happy if ProLine had had this hardware, because the intention was a multi-threaded 16-bit platform with an Apple II backplane. The word backplaning meaning the bus, hardware, and software when you call it backplane, because it's, it's compatible, so you could use Apple II hardware in the back, Similar to the later IBM compatible machines, you could use the older 8-bit cards and newer 16-bit cards. You could always go down on cards, but never forward on the older machines, obviously. So BUS was compatible backwards, but it was intended to be uh, running. And he, we used the word Unix, like Unix uh, 4 back when. And if you think about it, 84, a one megahertz 16-bit machine, probably a pretty good Unix machine for the day. Because there wasn't much more than that anyway. That was what they were supposed to do. So it ran kind of a modified ProDOS that I don't think a copy of it ever survived. I never found one. But it would boot up. ProDOS point, you know, 1.0.1 would load on it, but 1.1.1 would with a patch, and no others would. The others would bomb, crash in a monitor. AppleWorks would load, AppleWriter would load, and a bunch of other stuff would try and quit because now the ROM was pretty much a lot of things different because, again, it was a departure. So it was barely compatible. Yes, and by the way, I'm te- obviously I'm saying this because that machine, that motherboard worked. Later on when I was talking on phones, yeah, and it worked, it still worked. And I was, wow. And uh, sadly to say at the moment, it does not work, but I am hopefully sure that one day I will sit down and do some chip swapping and find out that it is not one of the custom chips that has suffered the failure. Great amateur example of I always look at everything before I fire it up for the first time, except I didn't look. Complacency will kill. Metal clip from the speaker that holds the speaker down decided to come off somehow and find its way under the motherboard on the lower part down there. Turned it on, and I heard squealing noises, and I turned it off, and it never worked after that. I think it... Uh, but the area of the motherboard isn't, it was all, was all off-the-shelf logic, so I'm pretty sure it's... Then again, it might have been dead before that, because they were they were surprised it worked. Anyway, that was the most unique thing. So now fast forward, you mentioned WAS you mentioned WAS in 2013, but in 2003, I brought that out, and Waz saw it, and he says, that was about the era that Waz was not at Apple, between the airplane crash and the I'm going off on my own, and jobs taking over, and that whole weird era where Waz that kind of dis- disassociated himself. Pre-85, late 83, and he wasn't really aware of it, but he'd heard about it, and uh, he was surprised to see it. Another person that was of all the people at this Apple II Developers Conference gathering that, yeah, no, we were, we were, we were retro now, in 2003, we were retro now. Okay. I would have figured of all the people that would have seen it, Mike Westerfield, I pull it out, show it to him, and he goes, nope, never seen it. I said, if anybody would have seen it. And "I, I heard about it, wasn't sure if it existed, never saw it. There it is, right there thought, of all the guys, he's the one that did APW and the programming tools and whatnot for all the, for the Apple II stuff, all the people that would, should have seen it, because if you're going to come out with a platform, you need a developer set. You figure he would have done it. Well, okay, it makes sense, because there's only one. There's a number one written on the motherboard back there where the number is. And it's just one. And uh, you know, they talk about the Apple th- one. you know, Southby says we're going to get $350,000 for it. And there were 25 or so Mark Twain's. There were 250 Ethernet cards. Probably about 100 Super 2, the 2E, original 2E boards. There's one Golden Gate 2E. Which one is more rare? <laughs> 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 yeah, I know. The Apple one probably going to win anyway. But, yeah, you get my point. So, uh, yeah, Waz had never seen it. So, when he was signing stuff, I said, here, sign the back of the board. So, Waz signed the back of the board. Fast forward 2013... Was has been so many places and done so much stuff. I'm not surprised that when you brought it up, and he says, oh, really? When I showed it to him and I said, yeah, and you look, you even signed it. He, <laughs> he, he, he kind of looked at it and he says, yeah, don't get old. Another unique 2C that I had gotten at that point was 2C that has serial ports like the 2C Plus, but the motherboard was more like the smart port 2C, 2C with the memory card, except that it didn't have the pin connector. It had, I mean, it didn't have the pin connector straight down. It had the pin connector sideways with a ribbon cable, and the memory card was specifically designed with a cable that you could lift up and tilt the thing sideways and get in, and the memory card was attached to the bottom of the keyboard rather than sitting on top of the motherboard. It had a built-in three and a half inch drive, but the three and a half inch drive was based on the Liron design, the Unidisc. The drive connector on the motherboard is 34 pin, and it has a totally different, but pretty much the same. You open up a Unidisc, and it's got the square card in it. It says Leron on it. It's got the connectors. The cable comes in. The, the daisy chain port. And then it's got uh, the 20-pin slot to go to the Sony drive. Well, this one, instead of having a 20-pin in, has 34-pin in, but has the same 20-pin out to go to the Sony drive. So you'd put a Sony, probably, you know, I'd figure the black-labeled Unidisc mechanism in there. And this one had never been... Uh, think this one has some components over by the power supply area missing so it hadn't been fired up yet ever so it looked like a 2c plus from the outside but except inside there was no uh, zip chip accelerator the 2c plus essentially had the 4 megahertz zip chip broken out on the motherboard they integrated it and zip wasn't allowed to say it was a zip chip and apple didn't say what it was but when you took the zip utility disk and booted it up it said you've got a 4 megahertz zip chip and all the same keys and points and everything else happened to work so you kind of have to go yeah that's a zip chip and had the cache just like a zip gs and the asic and everything was there i said you know this is just like a zip gs and all we do is change the oscillator and put cpus in i think that sparked a uh, little revolution back then because later on in the uh, rockhurst era james little john 8-bit system started he went off on his own and started messing with it more and first thing we're doing is putting faster chips in there says where do you get faster chips i said just take an 816 and stick it in there. What? You mean you can stick an 816 in a in a 2E or 2C? Yeah. Just stick it in there. It's just going to be an 802. You're not going to get 16 bit, but it works. And I said and for that matter, I've even taken the Zip GS and put it in a 2E and a 2C connected to the CPU connector and I get a fast 2E or 2C with DMA compatibility, imagine that. <laughs> the only uh, DMA car accelerator for the 2E was the uh, Transwarp 2, and they based that on the rocket chip, which was a misappropriated design from Zip Chip, who eventually prevailed in a lawsuit, and they had to disappear. So that was short run. Real quick on the Zip Chip, the Transwarp and the Zip. The Zip was a hardware accelerator, CPU replacement, whereas the Transwarp, two different approaches. Transwarp was more of a Environment enhancer because you put a zip chip in and you failed various self tests depending on what things you disabled and enabled but it didn't mean anything was bad it just means because it had certain things came back and and uh, wasn't expecting but here's the flip side you could take a zip GS and stick it in a 6502 socket or a 65816 socket rumor at the time was well the Super Nintendo had a 65816 it actually it doesn't but it has a very similar chip command set and wise you could put this on that motherboard if you could wire it up, and it would work. I had a 16-bit 2E, but I did one more step from that is I took the 16-bit option for the RAM works and stuck the zip card on it, so I had a 16-bit accelerated 2E, or 2C. <laughs> Shoved it all inside there and shut the lid, and uh, ran the 8-bit Zippy program for the 2GS, and of course it worked because it was just ProDOS 8. It doesn't check, it just looked for stuff that it could find a Zip GS, and Yep, there's an 8 megahertz Zip GS here. Anyway, that 2C was before the C+, 2C+, but after the last 2C, about 85. And 2C+, was, was uh, 89, and was a year and a half after the 2GS. That always gave rumor to the what was eventually the Mark Twain, which everybody said, oh, it's going to be faster, it's going to be four full megahertz, it's going to have this, the word rumors are always coming out, it's going to have a new bus slot, it's going to have... That's 65832, and back to Kansas Fest. I believe it was the second or third year that Western Design Met was there, and similar to an Apple Fest showdown, or an Apple or a Mac World showdown, or something, where somebody asked one of the Apple II evangelists, where is the next Apple II? And it got into a little sitting match of back and forth where they all pointed at Bill at, uh, Mench, and they said, ask him, because elusive... 65816, it just had, wasn't ready to come out yet. And you couldn't get them. Again, like I said, the Golden Gate 2e was based on the 816, but you couldn't have it, so it had a 802 in there with some wire on it just to make it work. And uh, along those lines, it wasn't until the Super Nintendo came out and the PDA revolution, Newtons and whatnot, when Sanyo made a compatible PDA device and they wanted to use the 65816. They licensed the die. This is how you did it back then. If you wanted to build it yourself, you would license the die and you'd cat uh, your own chips in the foundry and you'd basically buy them, you get them done, and you pay a royalty on it instead of buying chips from them. Well, the die design was relatively, I don't want to use the word poor or substandard, but it could have been better. And that was one of the holdbacks for why you couldn't get a yield, a faster A16 from a production run. You were lucky if you got six megahertz out of the things first TransWarp GS came out they were coming out at eight because they had some seven CPUs but then after a while they stopped saying it was eight megahertz took off the amount of megahertz from the ROM and they were shipping them as low as six because they were shipping whatever they could get to work it was really hard to get chips now we go up to like 91 or so Again, the same era of uh, when Zip GS came out Zip GS had a different approach to where you could basically get two megahertz more than a chip was rated for straight off the bat okay about the time Sanyo wants an eight sixteen and realizes we can't use this, we're simply going to read lay out the die and redesign it. Please give us the drawings. They redesigned it. One of the changes was nowadays it's probably a huge number, but back then, one point two micron, the tolerances and the thicknesses of the lines and the spacing between traces, the microscopic level. The eight sixteen was designed on a one point five micron, and it was. Tightly designed, it was overstressed. Whereas when they redesigned it on a 1.2 micron environment, now two things: it was redesigned and optimized. So the TransWarp and the ZipGS had to have watchdog circuits and race circuits, race condition checks and things for certain things that when the chip accelerated, certain things didn't work. So if you looked at a, a heart rhythm a speed rhythm for the 2GS accelerator, it you know it's just going eight megahertz it's going somewhere anywhere between 2.8 and 8 at any given time, depending on what's going on, what's cycling. And both Zip and TransWarp had their ways of dealing with this, and that's how they made them work. The first 2GS accelerator was actually MD Ideas, the people who had the first sound card. They had an Apple accelerator at Apple Fest 1987 on the first 2GS, and theirs was a giant set of cash RAM, SRAM-based, and they were claiming 6 megahertz, but they had this huge board plugged into the processor, and that was their prototype, and that never saw the light of day, because apparently couldn't get it small enough. But now, we'll go back to Sanyo. Sanyo designed the 816 on their own, and said, okay, now we're going to make this so that it's good for us. And eventually, you hear today of the Sanyo chip, the 816. Western Design doesn't even make their chip. They buy it from Sanyo. Sanyo makes the 816 still. Even the ones that they still have today, I don't know what the you know I haven't seen any, I haven't bought anything in the last few years, so I don't know what the production numbers are, the dates on them. But last time I bought some, you could still get 20 megahertz 6502s, 802s, in 40 pin packages like the like the uh, 2e uses and whatnot. You can't get them anymore. Now all you can do is get 816s in the square 44 pin. And again, since an 816 works as a 6502, it matters matters not. So that's what you're going to buy. But Sanyo redesigned it. Zip. I was working closely with Zip at the time, about the time that Zip GS came out from the 1.0 board to 1.01 board to 1.02. And 1.02 was the one that was the most one out there, so the sought-after one. And then it was a 1.01 had some mods and stuff that you could do on it. And then there's a 1.0 that very few of them got out, and they probably all got brought back. And then in '91, there was nothing wrong with these except they had some quirks that they had to redo some redesign in the logic for and they couldn't really go above 8 very well. They were significantly slower than 8 at a majority of the time because it was overcompensating for issues with CPUs at the time. Well, think of the time is the uh, base price of the Zip GS, 159 I think it was. Well, in 1991 at K-Fest, being that this is the Apple II conference, a good friend of mine that I had met some years earlier, that's uh, how I started working with Zip, because when he moved from Phoenix to LA after I was in Phoenix, he got involved with them as an evangelist and programmer and whatnot. He put together this deal and he says, you know, we got all these 1.0, 1.01 boards coming back. There's nothing wrong with them. Can we uh, sell them at Kansas Fest for a significantly, because they were, they were written off at this point. Can we sell them cheaper to developers so that we can get faster GGSs in the developers' hands instead of them having to spend money on transwarps or Full speed zips and whatnot. The deal was we had 100 boards. We sold for $75.91. The only worry was they said, well, we don't want people sending them back and upgrading to 1.02s because the upgrade was free. They swap it. Okay, we'll have to mark something permanent on it. Sharpie markers are supposed to be permanent. Well, uh, they are until so you take PCB cleaner and put it on it and poof, it's gone. But we didn't tell anybody that. But he says, yeah, and we wrote developer KFest on the back of every board. No, they can't upgrade these now because they're marked. And uh, we let it at that. Nobody's talking to us. If somebody figures it out, great. It was a hit. We had developers buying ZipGSs cheap, and that was basically for the developer channel, not for the end user, so that developers could have an environment that would encourage development, faster CPU, and get the boards out there, and get software to be compatible and to take advantage of it. After that came along, when Sanyo comes back to Western Design and says, here, here's uh, chips we've done. Would you like to check these out? And so they go and do that, and some get seated back towards Zip, who then got a hold of them, I got a hold of some of them, in that early first year of uh, K-Fest, Transwarp was relatively new, I had a 10 megahertz Transwarp running off of the stock cache SRAM, with just a heatsink stuck on it, and a fan blowing on the heatsink, and you know how the Transwarp, you turn it on now, and it's, you know, and then if it's faster, it's... Well, 10 was faster than 8, and it definitely sounded different when you turned it on. And I could turn that on in a quiet room, and everybody would go, what was that? And they'd come over and look. And I had the old ROM in it, and it said 10. And they where did you get that? Well, I wasn't really allowed to say at the time, but I was using uh, seeded Sanyo stamped dye chips, which had much better yield for spa- uh, faster off-the-line and uh, a lot of the bugs fixed. So they had those chips out for nine months or so. Zip had them, I think AE had them. They got passed down to a friend and me. And uh, one night I went up to LA area and went over to visit someone, went in the house and goes, here, check this out. And that's when he says, here, take these home with you and try these. So Between that and working with Zip, we figured out later what it was because they gave us the smooth plots and you could see that there was a better chip. And they were labeled slightly different. But they still said uh, WDC on it, but it had an oval around the WDC instead of just the letters. Well, those were the new 816s. So about late 91, early 92, you start buying 816s from Western Design. You wanted to ask them for the Sanyo ones. And at that point, they were selling 8s, 10s, and 14s. Now there's, you know, I think they were selling 20s at the last. But that was the infamous I want to get the 14 megahertz one. I want to get the Sanyo one. When the news came out that Sanyo redesigned it, and uh, it's being u- it's used in car instrument clusters and embedded controllers and things. It's got a lot of use still today. It's still a very versatile platform. But anyway, back to that. That the Zip GS, now you could turn off a lot of the fixes and it would go faster on that Sanyo design. Consequently, you could take the original Transwarp 1.0 gals. And go back because you could roll back all the changes and you had a slightly, and you could actually notice it into some, if you programmed, you could find it, you could notice it in some code that you could see this transorb is slightly faster than that one at the same megahertz. But you could also make that one go 10 without fooling with uh, SRAM speeds, just changing a crystal and making sure that it was stayed cool. So if I was in an air conditioned room, it was fine. But if you took it out in a hot room, you had to have a fan on it. But that was it. But I had that 10 megahertz machine for a while. And and, then Zip started doing, everybody started experimenting with Zips and splitting cache. And that's where you take double the amount of cache and you split the voltage on it so that you can boost the voltage to the CPU. So you can give it a little kick in the butt and make it go faster. And people were doing that with transwarps. And yeah, it's just all kinds of crazy stuff going on back then. I kind of got the feeling it's going to be 1991 all over again because there's some other stuff in the works too, but we will leave it at that.
1: That's great stuff, Tony, and great stories. And, uh, yeah, I think uh, everyone's going to want to come to Kansas Fest after that and hopefully get to see some of this cool stuff. Uh, yep. I don't know if we've said it yet, but uh, K-Fest registration closes on July 1st. Is that right? I believe it's actually
4: more like the 9th or so. It's usually the week before for, on, for on-campus residency. Because we've got to turn all that information into Rockhurst and get the rooms assigned and whatnot. That was one of the things that changed in the last 10 years because we would let people come to the very end. And had some people, yeah, I'm going to come, I'm going to come, I'm going to come, and they don't show up. And it made a mess with rooms. So basically we just said, we're going to do this a week early so we
1: can get that off our our plate. But yeah, get that taken care of
4: by the... Uh, first week in July, and you will be fine.
1: Awesome. All right. Well, Mike, do you have any other questions before we let Tony go? Uh,
2: I think that'll do it.
1: Well, thanks for being with us on the show here, Tony. This has been awesome.
4: Yep. It's been a while since I've been on a podcast, and as so we all have these these round-to-its. I just have, <laughs> and one of mine is, I want to do a podcast on 80s and Apple 2s and stuff one of these days, and
1: I'm getting real close.
2: <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, definitely, uh, we'll definitely promote the heck out of that
1: telling you it's coming it's <laughs> close so here we are <laughs> all right well thanks tony and uh yeah we will definitely see you at k-fest yep should be an interesting uh, summer
3: hello welcome to two alive's apple 2 review in a moment we'll take you to apple expo west to see the newest apple 2 products and to meet the people who produce them But first, I'd like to thank all of you, our subscribers. It's you who have made two alive a reality. We know that the Apple II is still a phenomenal home computer, and it certainly is heartening to find out that so many people agree with us. While the Apple II's heyday may be over, the computer still fulfills the expectations of the thousands of people who use it every day. People are still finding new and interesting things to do with their Apple IIs, even now, 16 years after the machine's original debut. The Apple II and its users keep surprising us with a continuing spirit of innovation and just plain fun. Two Alive is dedicated to celebrating the Apple II. Every article and every issue is written with a kind of enthusiasm that probably reminds you why you bought your Apple II in the first place. It's an enthusiasm that shows no signs of dying out. You'll see it at Apple Expo West, and you'll see it in the new products and upgrades Walker Archer will be demonstrating in our studios later. As long as the enthusiasm stays alive, so will the Apple II. You could spend the rest of your life and a lot of money keeping up with the latest and greatest computer system. Or you could take another look at the computer you already own and discover it all over again. Those who follow the first course will never be satisfied with their machines. Only those who choose a computer for the long run can develop the kind of deep understanding and appreciation for the machine that transforms an ordinary computer from an expensive toy into a worthwhile investment. You're an Apple II user. You've made your investment and you're sticking with it. And so are we. Our commitment to our subscribers sent us across the country to get the footage you're about to see. So without further ado, here's our coverage of Apple Expo West. After the Expo coverage, stay tuned for more product demonstrations here in our studio. Thanks again for supporting Two Alive. Enjoy the show.
2: All right, well, that was uh, great to talk to Tony, and if that doesn't get you excited for Kansas Fest, I think nothing will.
1: Yeah, I mean, Kansas Fest is its own excitement generator. So, uh, uh, but yeah, Tony is uh, only making it better.
2: Yeah, and he's got, some, uh, he's got some really neat prototypes and one-of-a-kind Apple hardware stuff. It's always great to see the boards, the, the 2X and the, the Super 2, um, I think the Golden Gate Prototype 2E and things like that. But we have some news to talk about, don't we?
1: Yeah, let's, uh, let's roll on into that,
0: shall we? All right. <laughs> It may be old, but there's still news. Apple two News.
2: Okay, so we're just talking about Kansas Fest. And uh, just a, a quick reminder again, by the time you're hearing this, the early registration is already closed. But you could still register all the way up until July 1st. At the regular prices, it is a bit Uh, A bit more expensive, but if you're planning to come or you had some last-minute stuff and you didn't know if you were going to make it, that's your cutoff.
1: Yes, so run, don't walk to kansasfest.org and register. Of course, we'll have the registration link in the show notes to make it as easy as possible. No excuses. If you're listening to this show, then you should be there.
2: And you should be subscribing to the Kansas Fest mailing list as well. There's a lot of discussion about what it's like and what to bring and planning and things like that. Uh, So, be sure to subscribe to the Kansas Fest mailing list.
1: Yeah, for sure. The mailing list is the go-to place for questions. You know, if you're wondering what is this really like or how do I get there or who all is going or, you know, people organize side trips. So yeah, mailing list is where it's at.
2: How do I avoid Mike?
1: Right, yeah. That's easy. Just uh, follow me around because I'll be avoiding Mike. So That's, that's right.
2: That's if you see us passing each other in the hall like avoiding eye contact and it's uncomfortable yeah, that's that's pretty much how the relationship actually is. We're just sort of pretending to be nice to each other right now.
1: now avoiding Carrington that's difficult that guy's like that guy's like a heat rash. He just never seems to go away. <laughs> heat rash, wow. <laughs> Uh, I kid, I kid. All right, well, let's uh, yeah, let's let's roll on into uh, the rest of our news here. It's been a while since we've talked about Halt and Catch Fire. We had a practically regular segment for a while, and we may have a practically regular segment once again because it's back. By the time uh, you listen to this, in fact, it will be already back. The uh, first episode of Season 2 airs on May 31st.
2: As we're recording this, that is, that's tomorrow, and I'm definitely looking forward to seeing what they're... What they have planned, I, I know that things got kind of wacky there at the end uh, of last season. They sort of got off track, but uh, the showrunner and, and the director have, have said that they promised to uh, bring things back around the way they were uh, during uh, the early first season episodes, which is good, uh, so I'm looking forward to that. We'll, uh, we'll link to all that in the
1: show notes. The uh, Yeah, the teasers for season two of *Halt and Catch Fire look, uh, look really quite good, so... Uh, Definitely looking forward to that. Well, uh, from video uh, entertainment to audio entertainment, uh, uh, I'm a big fan of uh, Rob Flack O'Hara's podcast, Sprite Castle. Do you listen to Sprite Castle, Mike?
2: I make it a policy not to listen to anything he does. Mm. I have a hard enough time listening to him on uh, on No Quarter.
1: <laughs> yeah, I wondered if you listen to your own co-hosts' <laughs> other podcasts. He's cheating. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I,
2: I do. I do enjoy Sprite Castle. I, I don't catch every episode, and uh, to my uh, regret, of course. But you caught an apple II Dig, I think here on, on this uh, a, pre- a recent episode. What the heck is that about?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, all of my smack talk about Commodores and Ataris, bootari, has uh, finally <laughs> caught up with me. And I've got a little got a little taste of my own medicine on Sprite Castle. Uh, I'm a big fan of the show, and even though I'm not a Commodore person, uh, it's really entertaining to listen to. And uh, in episode uh, four, I believe it is, which we will link to in the show notes on Track and Field. Uh, Mr. Flack O'Hara has, starts off by introducing. Uh, track and field by playing the music, and uh, he plays the Apple II music and then makes some comment to the effect that, Oh, look how terrible this is! and then he's like, Oh, just kidding, here's the Commodore music and it's much better. So, it was, I laughed. So, thank you, uh, thank you, Rob, for that. <laughs> what a jerk, yeah, you know, I composed an angry email about it, uh, to him. <laughs> But uh, then I stopped because I realized he wouldn't be able to read it because it was eighty columns, and oh, so it no. wouldn't fit on his computer. So, wow. yeah. So Rob, just imagine that I had sent you uh, an, an email and that you could have read it about how uh, how upset I was about that.
2: Rob, the gauntlet has been thrown. <laughs> <Yeah. down. laughs>
1: this is only going to get worse, folks. <laughs> uh, all right, moving right along. So we talked about *Halt and Catch Fire*. Well, there's another excellent TV show with retro content. Why don't you tell us about that, Mike?
2: Yeah, a couple of months ago, actually, we were talking about the IT crowd. I think one of our listeners wrote in and was talking about the awesome, cool gear that you see in the background of the office uh, where most of the action takes place on that show. And uh, then you and I uh, talked about our, I guess, memories of what we saw there. You didn't see any of that. And and I got a couple of the items right. But there is a, a YouTube video. It's called the IT Crowd Manual. Uh, you can watch it. It's a it's a full. Uh, it's like what thirty or sixty minutes. It's a behind the scenes look that covers everything about the show, and I, I highly recommend it because it's it's uh, great. You get the views from the actors and 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 the crew. But there's a, a segment of the documentary that talks about precisely what we were talking about. It's the toys in the office, up close. And there's uh, there was an Altair and the Commodore PET and the Macintosh and uh, a bunch of other non. Vintage computing related stuff as well, but just overall a great doc and and fun to to see that uh, obviously somebody cared enough about that sort of thing the way we do, not only to put it there in the first place, but to think to include it in the documentary.
1: Yeah, it's a terrific show. I'm sure many of our audience uh, members watch the IT crowd. It's absolutely an awesome show. And if you haven't watched it, this is a perfect excuse to do so. Uh, this documentary is great. I mean, not specifically Apple II content, but there's lots of fun retro-computing stuff um, behind the scenes on this show. So take that retro-computing roundtable. Now, uh, moving right along. To, <laughs> that's right. I'm throwing down, uh, alienating all of our fellow <laughs> podcasters tonight. Uh, so another show that I'm a huge fan of is uh, Orphan Black. And Oh, yeah. I love that oh, show. Just amazing. And uh, Tatiana Mulsani is a national treasure. She really is. <laughs> But yeah, funny thing, uh, there's kind of an Apple II sighting in the season two, episode nine, which you can watch uh, right now on Amazon Prime Video, which is where I've been watching it. There's uh, yeah, quite out of the blue. Uh, so they're in Casima's uh, lab, and they have these. I won't spoil anything if you're gonna, if anyone's going to watch the show, but they have these uh, old floppy disks that they need to read these old five and a quarters. So they make a big show of how they have to you know try and find a really old computer to to read these things. <laughs> But what's funny is, so they pull out this old computer and it appears to be, it looks like a PC XT clone of some sort. What's funny though, is that it looks like a legitimately old uh, machine because it's uh, really, really yellowed. And uh, you can tell it's not just, you know, a weird color. It's that distinctive uh, yellowed plastic color that we all know and hate. But what's (sighs) interesting is then they turn on the monitor and the monitor is an Apple IIe monitor. There's no question about that. Uh, they do a real close up of it's the model. I don't know the exact model number, but it's the one with the kind of recessed power button in the top right corner. You know, mm. and uh, has kind of has the Apple logo behind it. It's a nice design. Interestingly, once once the machine boots up, the screenshot or the video image appears to be it's it's not exact. I don't think, but it's close to a legitimate DOS three point three catalog list. Oh. So uh, at the very least, uh, somebody the on the production crew uh, looked at an Apple II when they designed that screen. It doesn't look like it's an ex- it's exactly right, but it has distinctive DOS 3.3 features, like it says disk volume 254, like they all did, and so on, because nobody bothered to name their disk volumes. <laughs> but yeah, you can tell it's not exactly right. So they at least modeled it off of an Apple II disk catalog listing, and it was certainly a legitimate Apple II monitor. So a uh, very interesting and pleasant surprise. Yeah, so that was a fun little random uh, Apple II-ish sighting uh, on uh, one of my favorite TV shows. And yeah, if you haven't seen Orphan Black, definitely go watch that. It is amazing. They're about halfway through season three right now. So yep. run don't walk to that. Uh, but uh, speaking of more modern things, Mike, you've been playing with some new toys lately.
2: Right, so Reactive Micro sent me their TransWarp GS clone. It's the prototype as a review unit. And this thing is great. Um, mine arrived uh, without a fan because I guess they haven't, at the time, they hadn't bought all the parts yet for it. The the ones that are going to ship are going to have the fans attached. And so without the cover on my 2GS, I could boot and run um, GSOS reliably at 18 megahertz with this card. It never crashed at all, which is a really unusual speed for the older cards. You generally couldn't get much above like 15 was pushing it, you know, and and if you got really lucky, you might get 16 or 17, but this one ran great at 18. If I put the, um, if I put the cover on, then it got crashy, I think just because, because of the heat, you know, the the air circulation in the 2GS was never that great to begin with, but I think with uh, having the fan on it um, will alleviate that problem. I, I, the, the other thing that, that I noticed about, and some other people have pointed this out too on the uh, Apple II enthusiasts group on Facebook, was that the header for the cable is mounted on the other side as opposed to on the front, the way the old ones were. Which sort of actually limits where you can put the card. You're, you're, you're um, stuck with, not necessarily stuck, I guess, but uh, you're going to be in in either you know slot slot one or two because just because of of how you have to manage the manage the cable. And and where it aligns with the the CPU plug.
1: Hmm. Okay. Uh,
2: they also sent me a Ramworks three expander. Um, this is the the uh, one megabyte, a megabyte memory plug thing that goes on your Ramworks card. That's not nearly as sexy, of course, but uh, it does work. And if you have a, a Ramworks card and you're looking to add another megabyte of memory to your Apple IIe, then this is uh, the way to go. They, did announce the price for the the 2gs clones and it's not cheap uh we didn't expect it to be like uh, sean fagy said when he was on the uh this, these boards have a lot of silicon and they re- it requires a lot of work and so they're going to be selling these for 550 dollars which is kind of about what the old ones are going for on eBay. So not a big discount there, but you do get the warranty. You do get the newer card. And my experience was that this thing ran great at 18 megahertz. And I don't know if that's an indication that they're all going to run like this when, when they show up, but your card will come with the, the latest cash, the 32K cash and the 1.8 uh, ROM, which the older cards, you know, uh, unless somebody upgraded their card, you're not going to get that. So um, there's if you're really wanting one of these, there's definitely a reason to to go with this rather than trying your luck on eBay.
1: Yeah, I think that price is completely reasonable, honestly, for what you're getting. I mean, a brand new card, uh, you know, and all the, the pluses that come with that. I mean, you buy something on eBay, who knows what you're really going to get? Does it work? You know, is the seller being honest? Is it you know as as described? Who knows? You know, how long is it going to keep working for? You don't know. Has it been overheated in the past and now it's on the verge of failing? You don't know. So yeah, I mean. For a brand new part, and yeah, I mean, 18 megahertz is just that's astonishing. Uh, for a 2GS, I mean, my 2GS at seven megahertz with an original transwarp just screams along. I mean, it's fantastic at that speed. So, I mean, 18 megahertz it's more than twice as fast. So, you know, even if you get one that'll only go to 14 or 15 megahertz, that's still, you know, it's really quite worth the money.
2: Of course, you don't get the transwarp splash swoop <laughs> sound, you know, that shows up is, is just all wrong at 18 megahertz. So,
1: yeah, there is that. There is that. Uh, well, have your Mac set up next to it with playing a YouTube video of that TransWarp startup. <laughs> yeah, I used to just literally turn on my 2GS just to listen to that TransWarp startup. It's amazing. Yeah, are they going to be selling these at Kansas Fest, you know? or
2: I'm not sure what their plans are. I know that they have the batch of prototypes, uh, of which I have one and Sean has one and a couple of other people have them. And those, I think, they're going to sell on eBay, and I'm not sure what their, their their plans going forward forward are for you know a a retail production run based on this. Sean actually posted, I think on I think he posted it on the uh, on the enthusiast group list that there would be some great hardware announced at Kansas Fest, and I'm hoping that's what he's talking about. Was because once this group of of prototype boards is, is Pretty small, and obviously, you would want a larger production run where people can actually um, just go online and order them rather than having to fight like a pack of wild dogs for them on eBay.
1: All right, well, that's very exciting stuff. Well, Mike, one of my favorite games is Wasteland. If I was, yeah, so if I was to maybe want to find a random mention of it in popular media, where would I go?
2: I don't know, I didn't put that in there. Isn't this your item? No, it's not.
1: Wow, this is very professional. So yeah, Wasteland has shown up uh, over at this site, spokesman.com, which wasn't one that uh, I was super familiar with, but it showed up in my RSS feed. And uh, yeah, they're highlighting different games that are uh, now playable in your browser, uh, thanks to the Internet Archive, and of course, uh, as popularized by Jason Scott, who we had on the show uh, last month. And yeah, they're showing uh, wasteland this time around. So they have some links there to play it in your browser. There's a bunch of screenshots that are, uh, I think, from the Commodore 64 version, but of course, it was much better on the Apple II, as we all know. So everything's
2: better on the Apple II.
1: It really is, yeah. Uh, mostly because you know you get to play it within your lifetime because you know the drives are actually reasonably fast. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> any chance I can get to slip that in there, I'm gonna take it.
2: Oh yeah. Just twist the knife a little That's bit. That's right.
1: So, uh, yep, head on over to uh, spokesman.com. We'll link to that and you can play uh, Wasteland on the Internet
2: Archive. Yeah, and they do mention uh, Wasteland 2, which I was a huge fan of. I played the heck out of that game. And they talk a little bit about that. So, after you've played the first one, you can go play the second one. And of course, that game was yeah rebooted thanks to uh, Kickstarter, which is pretty
1: cool. So from Wasteland, uh, from a dark future, we go to kind of a high-tech future. Everybody, I think, remembers Minority Report, which was a uh, pretty spiffy sci-fi movie with uh, Mr. Tom Cruise and the designer who designed the famous or infamous, depending on your perspective, uh, user interfaces in that movie, you know, where they're standing in front of these glass wall screen things and they're waving their arms around like chimpanzees and things things are happening. (laughs) Apparently the designer who designed that UI got his start on an Apple II, so there's a neat little interview with him where he mentions uh, writing a game at, uh, at his school in 6502 Assembly on the Apple IIs. Apparently it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek uh, game uh, involving doing violence to one's teacher, as <laughs> many a student has fantasized doing. And it's honestly, it's kind of a terrible interview. The questions are awfully uh, softball, but uh, oh, true. <laughs> it's very short. It's like, oh, what do you well, what does your day consist of? It's like, well, right. I get out of bed and I get coffee and I feed the cats. And well, yeah. but anyway, it's fun to see a little Apple II mention in there.
2: Yeah, I, I like seeing these random mentions of the Apple II in, in interviews and things. That, at, people talk about early influences. We've mentioned a few episodes back about, I don't know, what's her name, Beyonce or Mariah Carey or something, her music producer got his start on the Apple II, and he brought that up but didn't mention any other details about it. And I, I like this one because it's a little bit more, he at least talks about the tech, um, that it was in assembly language and, and the bitmap graphics and things like that. So nothing, again, the the interview overall is definitely a fluff piece, but yeah, fun to see.
1: Yeah, uh, we've talked about this before, but I always like seeing, uh, sort of non computer techie programmer engineer type people talk about the Apple II as you know, and the effect it had on them, you know, being kind of an early mainstream computer. Uh, you know, it affected uh, people from all walks of life. But speaking of techie and engineering type of people, uh, they were in attendance uh, at the uh, recent Maker Fair, and uh, there's a nice uh, article on Hackaday about that. I guess there was a display of vintage hardware, and uh, there was some really Cool stuff there, including, uh, of course, there was an Altair, uh, and uh, there was some real computer stuff, uh, which, of course, we all know and love real computers, because if you can't afford the real thing, get the real thing. Of course, he has the awesome Apple One replica. He was showing his his new Superboard machines, uh, replicas of the Ohio Scientific computers.
2: His mini Altair. Yep,
1: yep. And uh, there was some, uh, of course, excellent Apple II hardware there as well. And there's some really great pictures of it all. Uh, we'll show that in the uh, show notes. And one thing I really like about this is there was a, a Canon cat there, which, of course, was the inspiration for uh, Jeff Raskin's Swift card, which is a very interesting piece of Apple II paraphernalia with a funny kind of uh, story behind it. And uh, it's, it's a funny kind of thing. In fact, we've talked about this before on the show, but. Uh, I think we did a whole segment on it at one point so i won't go over that again but we'll link to some stuff in the show notes um uh, michael eagle has a great uh write-up on making your own uh, swift card if you want to do that so um
2: yeah he, he sold uh, a few swift card replicas actually and i think he was talking about recently actually doing a few more if there was enough interest so if, if you want a swift card replica Uh, Head over to Mike's blog, or uh, I think his email is on there, and we'll include that in the show notes as well. But let him know that you're interested. The Retro MacCast has their boards and their forums and stuff, and there's another collector here in in Colorado that, that seems to be really good at getting stuff that I want. And she apparently found one of these Canon cats on like a Goodwill shelf and got it for 20 bucks. And these things are hard to find and very wow. really expensive. And so that stung a little bit, <laughs> uh, but uh, just basically, you know, the Swift card, the idea was that uh, the operating system was on the, most of it was on the card itself. And I think the I think the term that Jeff used to use when he talked about it was uh turn on and write. If you put one of these in, your computer and actually did it the way Jeff did it. You were supposed to, there was like a, uh, um, you had to reconfigure some of the keys. He did something with the space bar. There's, there's, um, uh, pictures on the web of Jeff's Apple IIe that he modified to work with this card One of the prototypes when he was building it. Uh, so fun to look at and definitely an interesting experience in what might have been when it comes to human user interface.
1: Yeah, it was kind of a a possible alternate route versus, you know, GUIs and and what we ended up with. But uh, yeah, it was sort of kind of honestly, we've kind of come back to this idea that uh, all of your data is just in one big pile and you navigate all of it just by searching all the time. So, you know. Same, same way that we, you know, Google everything or, you know, if you've got uh, Spotlight, if you Spotlight on your Mac, you know, that's how Apple envisions you using your Mac these days is you just heap all your files into one big pile and you never look at them and then you just Spotlight everything. Um, so that's, yeah, that's kind of the same idea as the, the Swift card was uh, way back then. So, yeah, neat thing. You know who
2: Guy Kawasaki is, right?
1: Uh, The name sounds familiar, but help me out a little bit.
2: He was Apple's, uh, I don't know if he was the very first, but he was definitely Apple's most outspoken evangelist. I think he's kind of the one who started that whole evangelist thing that Apple had going on. Uh, His job was to go out and and convince people that Mac was awesome, and that Apple II and PC sucked. There's an article uh, on um, Channel World. I have heard of that website, but Mm, that's all right. Me (laughs) neither. And his opinion—I uh, think a lot of people actually had this opinion at the time—was that if Apple had gone ahead and built the um, um, next Apple II, whatever you want to call it, you know, we were talking to Tony earlier about some of the the prototypes and the Super II and things that might have been, and the Mark Twain and things like that. And Guy's opinion, though, is that if he had built, if Apple had built the next Apple II instead of the Macintosh, so that would have killed Apple. Uh, that that's an opinion I think that um, stirs up a lot of emotions for some people. What do you think?
1: Well, that's a kind of a complicated subject because uh, you know the next Apple too. Well, so then you get into this question of well, what what, what does it mean for something to be an Apple too, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I think. It's hard to argue that the you know the sixty-five hundred two architecture was a dead end and you know that wasn't going to go anywhere. So then you get into okay, so the next computer you build after that is definitely going to be different and it might say Apple II on it. But what does that actually mean? Does that mean it's backwards compatible? You know, if so, then whatever the new thing is, is going to be a completely different architecture, so you're going to just end up emulating or something to sort of maintain some compatibility, and that's basically what the GS was, right, with the Mega 2 chip. It was a completely different computer that had a teeny tiny 2E in it. And uh, but you know it was still an Apple II, I guess, because it said Apple II on the front. Uh, so you know that's yeah, it's that's sort of a question I just avoid, I guess, because uh, I don't know that there's there's a good answer. Um, there's an interesting quote in there. He said, if the, if they had asked customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster Apple II, and that's sort of a Funny variation on the um, quote that is probably apocryphal that is often attributed to Henry Ford, where he supposedly said uh, if he'd asked people what they wanted when he was designing the Model T, they would have said faster horses. Uh-huh. It's a funny quote, and I think it probably applies. I mean, you have to, you know, you do have to move on. I think that uh, they could have probably done more to sort of keep Apple II users in the loop the way that, you know, PCs did, you know, even though the architecture has changed. It evolved quite a bit over time. They still maintained, you know, a lot, of, a lot more backward compatibility than Apple ever did. So, you know, maybe that's what people mean by that. But, yeah, who knows?
2: If we want to put, I guess, a um, spin on it this way, you could say that they kind of really did the same thing with Macintosh because what they call a Macintosh today certainly is nothing like what a Macintosh was in 1984 or even, you know, 2000, 2001. And is it still a Macintosh? Well, it is because they call it a Macintosh.
1: Yeah, that's actually a really great point. And Apple's always been, you know, aggressively forward-looking, if you like. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, PCs have always been the opposite, which I find kind of interesting. I had this experience at the office the other day. Some, uh, some of uh, some of the, the folks on my team were asking about a project that I'd worked on um, something like 15 years ago on Windows. And you know, it was like MFC code from like the mid 90s. And uh, I dug up the zip file and I fired it up on my Windows 8 machine at work. Windows had to install some weird DLLs and stuff, but it, it you know, it ran and <laughs> it was sort of amazing. Uh, so Apple's never been interested in doing that, I guess.
2: Well, yeah, if you, I guess, really wanted to take it to a, a crazy extreme, you know, I, if they had called Macintosh the next Apple II or whatever, uh, would that have made Apple II fans happy? Would they have been okay with that? Steve Jobs obviously wanted to leave his mark and wanted to, uh, he wanted his own computer because he, there were you know, maybe some feelings that uh, he wasn't as significant as Woz was. That sounds to me to be in line with what I have heard about Jobs' ego. But, I mean, say he had decided to call it Apple II and and inclu- included that Super II chip or the Mega II or whatever they call it uh, that was in the 2GS. The would, would that still have been an Apple II then? Would people have been happy? I don't know.
1: Yeah, and to be fair, Apple did do a lot to kind of transition Apple II users. You know, I mean, the 2GS was, you know, arguably a transitional machine. It, could, it would sit on your Apple Talk network with your Macs and had a modern GUI operating system. And there was in the 2E, you know, yeah, and there was the 2E card that you could stick in your LC and, you know, move all your stuff over that way. So, you know, I think, I think they did a fair amount to keep people in the loop as far as uh, the Apple II stuff goes. But... You know, maybe they uh, would have done better if they just called that chip the teeny tiny 2e. Because <laughs> then everybody would be like, oh, it's so adorable. Let's put it in everything. And then I could be running 2e software on my PowerBook.
2: That's true. That's true. And then again, uh, it's always important to remember that Guy Kawasaki is kind of a dick. Yeah,
1: I got that sense from this article. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving along. Let's talk about some more fun stuff. Okay. Uh, the Marina IP stack is in the news once again. We talked about that on the last show and uh, how balls it is that this exists. Uh, for anyone who isn't in the loop, it's a TCP IP stack for 8-bit Apple IIs, much like Marinade on the GS, which was amazing enough. Uh, so he has updated it now, and uh, the big news is it now supports DNS. So uh, yeah, getting your 8-bit Apple II on the internet has never been easier. This is really very cool. I want to try this thing out.
2: Yeah, me too. Can't wait.
1: (sighs) Guess we got to talk about
2: Jobs movie stuff again, huh?
1: We just can't get away from it. (laughs) These things just won't die.
2: Yeah, so we we talked last month and the month before that and the month before that about uh, the the Aaron Sorkin Jobs movie that started out at Sony and is now over at Universal. It stars um, Seth Rogen as Woz and some other guy as as Jobs. They've released the trailer uh, online for uh, I don't know if this is a teaser or a trailer or a teaser trailer, what the difference is there, but uh, this is uh, uh, Michael Fassbender as Jobs. He certainly does not bear the physical resemblance to Jobs like like Kutcher and, and before him Noah Wiley did, but I don't know. He, he seemed to, at least from what I saw, seemed to do a pretty good job.
1: Yeah, and if one is to take a trailer as a very short synopsis of the film, then uh, the one scene I find interesting is where they show uh, Seth Rogen uh, playing Woz and he looks very sort of dejected in in the scene. So I wonder sad if that, was. Yeah, sad was. Yeah, so I wonder if that's uh uh indicative of uh his role in the film if he's going to play, you know, if he's going to if they're going to cover that period where Woz was was, you know, dissatisfied with the direction the company was going and, you know, how Jobs was kind of strong-arming everything and so on.
2: Well, I can't wait to not see it <laughs>
1: right there with you. I, I will <laughs> definitely not see it with you. Uh, well, uh, Kansas Fest is not the only uh, place people go together with their Apple IIs. Isn't that right, Mike?
2: Neither is uh, Oz K Fest. There's uh, a new Apple II Fest that's, Festival that's been announced uh, in France near Toulouse. And this one is being held from, wow, from August 3rd to 9th. So uh, another week-long celebration, probably closer in, in scope, if not scale, to Kansas Fest
1: yeah that's quite a quite a gathering so uh, i know that yeah the apple 2 is quite popular in france and so i guess it's not too shocking but uh, yeah it sounds like a lot of fun i wish i could go to that uh, yeah i will say that their logo also is adorable <laughs> yes that's cute since this is radio i guess i should describe it it's the uh, apple logo and they've kind of added some dimension to the back to make uh, the bite out of the apple look like a mouth and then there's a big googly eye on it and it's adorable. And
2: little feet so... yeah <laughs> Uh, Apple II Festival France 2015, I guess that's the official name, is being produced by group Apple II France, and there's a Facebook group that you can check out. And we would, of course, love to hear a a report from anyone who who happens to go to this thing.
1: Definitely, yeah. Please uh, take photos and video and whatever else and uh, share it with all of us.
2: Um, A bit of hardware news. Ian Kim of South Korea has created another Mocking Board clone and it's not the first one obviously a Reactive micro had their version 1 or whatever they called theirs and there was another one um and i don't know if there was an officially a company behind it or if it was just one guy and maybe from um from taiwan who made uh, a few that we, that he sold on ebay that didn't do they did the they did the music synthesis but they didn't have the sound or they didn't have the speech chips but this looks pretty good uh, what's your opinion when
1: yeah, it's a nice-looking card. Uh, what really struck me about this uh, article is that apparently he sold uh, twenty of these things already in uh, South Korea. So. Wow. That, to me, says there's quite a substantial Apple II community out there, and uh, we would love to hear from anybody uh, in that area. Uh, if anyone wants to talk to us on the show especially, that would be awesome. If you can sell 20 of a Mockingboard clone, then there are a lot of you out there. Speaking of Apple II groups in uh, other countries, we would we would love to hear about that.
2: Uh, Ian says the card supports uh, six channels of the Mockingboard 2, A, and C revisions, and also works as the three-channel Mockingboard 1. Each channel is mapped mapped to the YM2413. Music instruments and performance results have been quite excellent with Apple Two Games, so that looks pretty cool. It looks like um, he's also listing these on eBay, and they have a, a buy it now price of seventy nine ninety five plus eighteen dollars shipping. So uh, not cheap, but certainly not out of out of the range of reasonable for one of these.
1: Yeah, it's uh, I think it's a really fair price, honestly, for for what it is. So uh, speaking of independent Apple II projects, wow, that was a terrible transition.
2: <laughs> We're pros here,
1: folks. Yeah, this is, uh, this is not my day for segues. Uh, there's a, a picture book uh, being made on the Apple II called Bride of the Wizard King. And what's really amazing about this, uh, there's a Kickstarter for it, which we'll link to. What's really amazing about this is that he's actually making all of the artwork on an Apple II uh, with Blazing Paddles. And the artwork wow. is really, really nice. It's not, uh, as you might imagine, uh, amateur at, in any way. It's really, really quite beautiful. So I can't even fathom how much work this is. And uh, I would love to uh, to see more of this. So... Uh... all means go and support this Kickstarter. The the thing that came to mind with me on this one is I wonder if uh, if he's using floppy disks or some other, some sort of solid state storage, because I would be terrified of putting in all this effort and then losing all of that when a floppy goes bad. I mean, back in those days, we lost data all the time and we kind of were used to it, I guess, because we didn't have anything better. But nowadays, I think we're much more uh, expectant of data being permanent. Uh, so I would be terrified of doing this on, on
2: yeah. an Apple too. Yeah, bad floppies were just sort of uh, part of the experience. I'm sure we both lost quite a bit of work
1: over oh, yes. the years
2: and uh, just kind of shrugged and went, well, that's what happens. Uh, Miles Stonecutter is the, the guy who is doing this, and it's a 90 page fairy tale book. According to the article on Call Apple, it's taken him more than a year so far and is uh, nearing completion now this was the story was posted on may 9th um, so that was a few weeks ago and uh, may be done by now that would be really cool
1: yeah the artwork is outstanding it really is
2: so kudos remind you that even though they technically i guess we don't have this the the pixel count isn't as high as Atari or commodore (laughs) and stuff like that that you can still produce some some really beautiful uh artwork
1: yeah. And I think, uh, you know, there's there's a saying that the restrictions of the media are, are what make the art. And uh, yeah, I think that the Apple II has a, has a character all its own and is definitely capable of producing very attractive um, artwork if you're willing to kind of work within the limitations and understand them. Um, you know, I think we're seeing that with the screenshots that are still coming out from the Log- Lawless Legends team. Um, Seth over there is doing some amazing uh, artwork as well. So looking forward to that one.
2: Now, having said that, the Kickstarter goal set for twelve thousand Australian dollars, which translates roughly to nine thousand three hundred and eighty some dollars U.S. It has eleven backers, and in uh, as of this recording, it's going to close in about four days. And he's made a grant in total of six hundred and fourteen dollars, so I don't think he's going to make his goal, but hopefully that won't. Uh, dissuade him from going ahead and finishing and and putting it out there.
1: Yeah, we wish him all the best. So moving along to uh, 2GS games. Uh, Last month, we talked about Kaboom, the uh, port of Super Bomberman, or just Bomberman, I guess, if you like, to the 2GS. And uh, by the uh, fine folks at Ninja Force, and by that I mean Jesse Blue. Yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, uh, as we talked about last month, really, really an excellent game. So he's updated that to 1.01. Uh, I'm not sure what's in this, I assume some bug fixes. But uh, significantly, uh, he's also now uh, released uh, Ninja Tracker, which was the music player used in Kaboom, and also the famous Ninja Force Mega Demo, which is uh, one of my favorite demos.
2: The player is based on uh, the famous SoundSmith and was modified by uh, uh, originally modified by FTA's uh, Olivier. I'm sorry, Olivier. I don't know how to pronounce your last name. Gogel,
1: I believe. Okay,
2: yeah, there it is. And um, <laughs> it's freeware, and you can download it from the web page right now.
1: Yeah, and it's got tools for uh, converting Amiga mod files and uh, lots of cool stuff like that. So yeah, Boo, Amiga. <laughs> All right, moving along. Speaking of uh, video, I guess? No, I'm just going to give up on the segues today. Uh, GG <laughs> Labs uh, has been in the news lately with a new 2GS Video to Component uh, converter. Uh, this is, of course, something that uh, is very valuable to 2GS folks because the 2GS monitor is notoriously difficult to replace, uh, being a funky uh, analog RGB standard. It's basically uh, actually arcade video for anyone who uh, isn't familiar with the two GS. It's very difficult to hook it up to any kind of conventional monitor, so uh, this uh, something like this could be a real boon because uh, component video is still relatively easy to use.
2: This is um, being sold on eBay. They've sold a couple of cards for about seventy-five dollars, which again another. Reasonably priced card, especially these 2GS RGB analog monitors die. It's getting harder and harder to to replace them um, to keep them working. I, I would say worth seven, worth every penny of the seventy five dollars. And Gg Labs, if if you recall, is also the group that uh, did the the RAM cards a while back, uh, the four meg 2GS RAM cards. And uh, I don't know, I haven't checked out their web page. Probably should have. Beforehand, uh, with the RAM card, they also produced uh, the plans so that you could build your own if you didn't want to buy one from them. And I don't know if they did that with this or not.
1: This will be great to just honestly link to on Facebook because it seems like seven hundred thousand times a week, someone someone new comes into the Apple II enthusiasts Facebook group and says, "I have a 2GS and this pile of old PC monitors. How do I make them talk oh, to each other?" And <laughs> of course, right. the answer is you can't. And here's a really long explanation of what 2GS video <laughs> is and why it's weird and. Uh, So until now, honestly, one of the better options has been to use these arcade video converter boards that you can buy on eBay for people who are, you know, restoring old arcade games. There's these boards, uh, these FPGAs that you can buy that uh, will allow you to use... um, sort of traditional PC or LCD monitors with um, old arcade games. But the trick is 2GS video is not identical to that. So some of them work and some of them don't. And it's a real kind of a crapshoot. It's you're never quite sure if you're buying the right thing. And uh, they usually come from China. So it's six or eight weeks, uh, if you're lucky, before you find out if you bought the right thing. And it's just, yeah, it's a whole big thing. So uh, this is fantastic.
2: Sheppy, Eric Shepard, Kansas Fest regular and Apple 2GS Programmer extraordinaire, he uh, I don't know if he created uh, Sweet 16 originally, but I know that he is currently in charge of that project and has updated the uh, Sweet 16. Of course, is is the 2GS uh, emulator for for Mac, and this thing is outstanding. Does pretty much everything that you could uh, you could ever want from a, a 2GS emulator. Um, well, he has uh, also updated his Merlin 16 macros for System 6.0.1. Uh, I guess it's a, a couple of minor bug fixes, but if you're uh, Uh, A Merlin programmer in the in the System 601 environment, you're going to want to go and get these uh, get these updated macros.
1: Yeah, it's good stuff. In fact, uh, Sheppy is a recent guest here on Open Apple. That's right. All right. Well, speaking of Apple II luminaries, uh, Bob Bishop, who we did a tribute show to a while back. He's uh, famous for his game Dung Beetles, and an Apple II enthusiast has recreated this game to play in your browser. And uh, I played this quite a bit before the show, actually, and it's Pretty much a perfect port, as far as I can tell. It has, you know, all the great graphical effects that that game was known for. Uh, it has the awesome speech synthesis that that game was known for. Uh, you know, that Dung Beetles is just a technical tour de force, and uh, this browser remake of it uh, really recreates all that stuff uh, perfectly. And in fact, if you go to the uh, info screen, uh, the about screen in the game, uh, there's a little tribute page to Bob Bishop in there. I guess the uh, uh, he was trying to get this game made uh, to show it to Bob. And unfortunately, Bob passed away before uh, he was
2: able to get it finished. So really nice little uh, tribute to him in there. I think we we know him as the guy who co-founded Apple's R&D Lab with Woz and the early graphics work that he did with uh, Apple II right after it came out when there was no manuals, no other software. And he it was basically just him and his Apple II experimenting, digging around and finding all those weird screen holes and, and the odd way that the Apple II maps uh, maps memory to screen and things like that, and the fact that he was able to do that, and he could then sit down and you know write a game in a couple of days from from scratch to finish, uh, was just just amazing. A, a true innovator, for sure. Yeah, he basically reverse engineered the high-res graphics
1: screen, and uh, he might be the the first person outside of Apple to write anything with the high-res graphics. So. Uh, And then he just continued to innovate from there. I mean, yeah, he went into speech synthesis and all kinds of graphical effects and stuff that uh, are still amazing to this day. So uh, Chris Torrance is also a recent guest on our show. And uh, what's he been up to lately, Mike?
2: Well, he's been podcasting. And um, he's actually posted recently the the, uh, Assembly Lines podcast uh, uh, episode 11. And this is, I don't think, I didn't see it on iTunes when I did a search there, but this is a video podcast. Which I think iTunes will do, but he's got all of his episodes on up on YouTube, and the most recent one was is a uh, a, a how to a hardware how to for replacing your uh, RAM chips on an Apple IIc. If you wanna if you have a bad chip or you want to to put faster RAM in there for accelerating, it's a, a well done video. It's about how long is that? About ten minutes long or something like that, and uh, well worth well worth the watch if you're if you're into that sort of thing.
1: For sure, yeah. Replacing RAM chips is something a lot of us are doing these days as they start to fail. And uh, his video is great. He walks you through every step of uh, desoldering uh, uh, the old chips and putting in sockets and the whole whole nine yards. It's uh, there, yeah, there's no substitute for seeing somebody
2: do it if you're new to that stuff. So definitely recommended. And in fact, as I'm looking at his video queue uh, on YouTube, he's a He's also released uh, number 12. Uh, it's an EEPROM programmer on a proto board that I guess he put together. Oh, very cool. Talks about that 10 minute video on, on how he did that and how you can make your own. So some really awesome stuff going on over there. Excellent.
1: Well, uh everyone's favorite Bulgarian Plamen, has uh, been busy as well. He's of course best known for the s d floppy two s d card reader uh, for the Apple iI. It emulates the disk two so you can plug it into your uh, disk two card in your two e and uh he has recreated the senior prom uh
2: cracking board from back in the day. Is that right? That's exactly what this is uh if you were into cracking software back then, this was probably one of the one of the most valuable tools that you could have it It's a uh, a ROM replacement board for your Apple II, uh, 2E. And I think there was a 2C version as well. I never saw it. And, uh, the way it worked was it, instead of a, like, the, with a wildcarder or, a uh, the, the crack shot or something like that, which was a card that sat in a slot and you would press a button and it would just grab memory and dump it to disk. This was actually a, it had the original Apple II ROMs themselves, but it also had a whole bunch of utilities. Uh, built in that were specifically for helping you crack and analyzing uh, what was in memory, what was going on, and you could stop it, you could examine memory, you could save pieces of it, and then you could start the program up again and break back in later on. A very effective tool, and back then, you had to specify when you were ordering which version you wanted. If you had an unenhanced 2E, then you had to order that version. The enhanced 2E, you had to order that version. If you had a platinum 2E, which only had a single ROM, as opposed to the, the CDEF, it just had the CF, then you had to order that one. And, and this one, this particular ROM board has been, I guess, enhanced over the original because it has versions of all the different ROMs in the same set. So it doesn't matter which kind of Apple II you're using this on, you can just plug it in. Uh, and you're you're off and running. I think that um, it still requires the two ROM versions. So if you have a Platinum 2E, which only has the one chip, I don't know if that's available, but any... TUI that has the CDEF ROMs uh, this will work in, and he's selling them on eBay for $60, which actually is um, about $20 less than they sold for originally. So that's pretty cool.
1: It is very cool. Mike, you're quite the encyclopedia of cracking ROMs. Is there something you want to tell me?
2: <laughs> well, I had one of these, and I learned how to do things like boot tracing racing specifically with this because what was great when you ordered this was it, you didn't just get the, the chips um, you didn't just get the board to plug in. You got an extensive set of documentation on on general copy protection routines and, and how to defeat them and how to use the senior prom to examine and see what you were working with. Uh, and I learned a lot with this. Very cool.
1: Yeah. Well, of course, we have to acknowledge the hilarious pun uh, in the name senior prom. Uh, for any non-Americans, that might not be as funny, but uh, the uh, mm. senior prom is a high school ritual in uh, the United States and to some degree Canada. But it's funny, you know, there was uh, uh, in our uh, last episode, we did that little bonus episode and there's an extensive conversation between Matt Owensby and uh, John Brooks about uh, copy protection on the E2GS, specifically talking about Rastan. And uh, there was quite a, an interesting conversation there about all the different copy protection methods used. And uh, so it'd be interesting to see how something like this senior prom would help with some of those types of things. I think with Rastan, they never actually cracked it because they were uh, because of the aggressive uh checksumming that uh, john did with the code so they actually kind of circumvented the checksumming uh and uh, as i posted on facebook uh, one does not crack rastan one merely distracts rastan while it's checking to see if it's been cracked uh, <laughs> which seems to be how the crack ultimately worked so anyway uh, and of course we can't talk about uh Plamen without mentioning the vga2c which has been uh all the buzz on Facebook these days. Uh, he has he's working on a VGA converter for the Apple IIc, and it's it's absolutely beautiful. It's in this wonderful little white uh, case with a beautiful uh, logo on it and everything. It's just the production value on his products is really great. Uh, so everyone's looking forward to that, but no no release date on that yet. But of course, we'll keep
2: you posted. Oh and before we move on real quick the the creator of the original senior prom uh, his name is Clay Harrell, uh, which if you are a pinball fan you probably uh, are are familiar with Clay and and his work with pinball he's actually uh, crazy involved in that community uh these days I, I emailed him a while back about the senior prom and uh he you know said basically he moved on and didn't really have any information about the senior prom anymore and and he got rid of all the parts and didn't remember that much but he did talk quite a bit about his his pinball projects so that's kind of cool you should check that out
1: for sure yeah i'm a big pinball fan so i will do that all right well we talked about uh, apple 2 fans in france and korea uh, but of course we can't forget about uh down under
2: oz fest happened recently and, uh, and and in fact uh, tony diaz was down there but uh, he and he's going to, to do an extensive write up over on his web page about his experiences and post pictures there. Um, but in the meantime, there's also this list the Apple to dot com uh, list and it's uh, all the Australian and, and I guess New Zealander. Apple II News that's fit to print. Obviously it's open to, to everybody for to, if you want to, to sign up to, to receive updates and things like that. So kind of neat to, again to, to see all the community progress and, and projects that are happening there.
1: Neat stuff. Yeah, there's a great community down there in Australia. So keep going guys and keep sharing all those photos and links. We talked about the difficulties with GS video, but uh, frankly 8-Bit Apple 2 video is no picnic either as we have talked about lots on this show. It's Uh, Almost composite, but not quite, so you never quite know if your monitor is going to work. (laughs) And blogger and Apple II enthusiast Alex Lukasi has been working on this problem. And he's got a fun uh, couple of blog posts here. He's also a, a, an Aussie Apple II fan. In fact, he says he tried a few things uh, to get the video going, and what he ultimately ended up doing was quite a fascinating uh, approach. Uh, what I might describe as the hardest possible way to solve this problem, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, an, an awesome uh, engineering project, so definitely worth reading for that. He actually Uh, reverse engineers the uh, display port on the back of the 2C and ends up extracting some signals from that and builds a board that will then stream that video uh, over to uh, USB on his uh, modern machine and displays the video uh, that way. So it was initially just uh, black and white and he later got the color to work as well. Uh, it's pretty cool. And also in his article, actually, he mentions wanting to use uh, an iPad and uh, he uh, uh, found that if there was no, you know, kind of way to get video into an iPad. And uh, I've also encountered that. And I tried to do the same thing, actually, with my 2C Teddy Top project. Uh, I've got a little bit of a blog post on that. It is actually possible to use an iPad to display video if you don't mind destroying the iPad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so there uh, wow. yeah, I'll link to all this in the show notes for people that are interested, but uh, on eBay, you can buy iPad display control boards, and they have VGA and composite inputs on them, and if you rip apart your iPad, uh, you can... Uh, connect this board to the guts and uh, this board will drive the screen and the backlight and you supply your own power and everything else Uh, and uh, it does actually work the quality is not great for Apple II video which is why I ultimately didn't end up using it Uh, I didn't Uh, again, deal with the not-quite-composite nature of the Apple II very well. But if you have uh, other things you want uh, a nice, compact, uh, composite, or VGA LCD screen for, uh, it's a decent option, so I'll link to that in the show notes.
2: Right. We have a little bit of everything old is new again going on in early Apple photos and videos and things like that. Um, Business Insider um, recently posted a set of photos Uh, Apple's first employees um, and the headline is these photos Apple's first employees showed us from the company's earliest days are absolutely wonderful and this was posted by Jim Edwards on May 2nd 2015. Uh, The exact same article with a different title ran back in 2013 when it was called These Pictures of Apple's First Employees Are Absolutely Wonderful, also by Jim Edwards. I'm not sure what's going on there. Uh, they just slow news day or something. And we talked about the photos back then, but it is interesting to see see them get recycled like that. And in a similar bit of news, I guess, I don't know which... I saw, I think, first on Fast Company, but I don't know if they were the first blog to... To post about this. There's a um, a video uh, on YouTube of Laws and Jobs talking about uh, the company's quote early days. Now this was in 1984, so early days was a couple of years ago, and, and there's there's like a subset of bloggers and blogging organizations apple apple related that when one of them picks up something they all jump on top of it and they post their own version of the story so this thing within a day or two was on all of the you know, cult of mac and things like that but the video was actually posted by blake patterson like four years ago for a while there was a seller on ebay that had this uh set of dvds of all of these early apple videos and i think it was it was like 80 bucks or 90 bucks or something like that more than i wanted to pay and uh, they're not available on eBay anymore, but Blake snagged the copy and he digitized, or didn't digitize, but he transferred a, a bunch of the, those videos over to YouTube and this is one of them, but it's uh, it's been up there for a while. It's a fun video to watch. Um, yeah, I just thought it was kind of funny how, again, when, when one of them posts, they all do.
1: Yeah, and we'll share all these links in the show notes. You know, people have probably seen all these photos and videos before, but just in case, uh, yeah, it's funny, like you said, every seems like every few months, especially lately since Steve Jobs died, there's been all this, you know, uh, interest in Apple's early days and everyone keeps bringing up all these photos and they're always presented in this breathless, you know, blog post as though they were... Just you know, dusted, dug up out of some ammo can, hidden in someone's backyard or something, and no one's ever seen these photos. But honestly, most of them are promotional photos from back then, and everyone just forgot about them or something. You know, the (laughs) the one that kills me is they show uh, the title is always some variation of Steve, the two Steves, uh, slaving away in their garage. Uh, But of course, as we know from. Previous episode of the show the garage was actually not really relevant to their early days at all and in fact the photo is very clearly staged uh, you know Steve they're, they're both all smiles and Steve Jobs has this very sort of thoughtful pose modeled <laughs> after the thinker and his you know his very uh, hip hair is tossed just so and you know it's clearly a staged photo but, <laughs> uh, but oh no it's uh, it's a candid moment from Apple's early days I'm sure do you love Zork? I do. Who doesn't love Zork, right? It's everyone's first Infocom game, probably.
2: Do you love Zork enough to play it on your Arduino? In fact, do you love it enough enough to modify your Arduino so that all it plays is Zork (laughs) on your TV?
1: I don't know. That's a lot of uh, ifs, but uh, it is neat (laughs) that this is possible. I'll say that.
2: Yeah, so over on github.com, there are, uh, there's a set of code and instructions for the hardware for you to be able to plug your Arduino right into your television, and it goes and boots right into Zork. Uh, it looks like Zork 1. <laughs> it seems like a lot just to play Zork, um, especially when you have plenty of other options, but... Um, I guess somebody was bored and said, "Hey, got an extra one of these? I'm going to see if I can do it."
1: <laughs> yeah, it's kind of neat, though. I like uh, I like that people do this. It's it speaks to the elegance of Infocom's uh, designs or their their engineering. You know, they built everything on a virtual machine, essentially called the Z machine. And uh, to this day, you know, people are porting the Z machine to all manner of devices and computers and and phones and whatever. And because of that, you know, all these Infocom games are still playable uh, right out of the box. Um, so it's very, it's, it's very cool to see this. Uh, one can imagine, so it's interesting about the Arduino, you know, it's a fairly large board. It's you know, four or five inches square, but uh, in fact, it's almost all cruft. You know, there's a microcontroller at the center of it, an, uh, an Atmel AVR328, and that's what's doing all of the actual work. Everything else is just support hardware for talking to uh, you know, the tools and so on. So in theory, one could build uh, a very small device with just an Atmel microcontroller in it uh, and a small keyboard of some sort that uh, that ran this software that this person has put together um, and could run uh, Zork uh, in your pocket or on your watch or whatever. So uh, <laughs> I hope someone uh, takes this and runs with it uh, with that in mind.
2: Yep. Uh project is called the Zork Duino, and I have a link in the show notes.
1: Well, uh, we have. Uh, speaking of hardware hacking, we have some sad news, I'm afraid. Uh, Nishida Radio recently announced uh, that he is uh, shutting down production of his projects. Uh, he didn't say permanently, but that was, I think, pretty strongly implied. Um, I guess his health issues that we've talked about uh, have been getting worse. So he's taking uh, an unspecified break uh, once again from production. So we wish him all the best. And uh, those of us wanting uh, a Unis Disc Air, uh, I hope that uh, people got them while they had the chance. He even did a brief run of those. And if he is shutting down permanently, I hope that he will consider open sourcing his uh, excellent designs so that they're not uh, lost forever. So we wish him all the best.
2: Yeah, I'm sad to hear that. Sorry to hear go.
1: Yeah, he uh, he builds a couple of really amazing devices for solid-state storage and video conversion, and uh, he builds a lot of things that nobody else does and that are really hugely valuable. So, uh, uh, we yeah, we wish him all the best, and I hope to see him again soon.
2: All right, so I think that's about the end of the news. We do have a couple of eBay items to talk about, and uh, so here's the music for that section.
0: Look, rare, Steve Jobs. Look what we found on eBay.
2: But remember, we don't talk about eBay on this show. (laughs) That's right, we don't. And in fact, these items uh, sold quite a while ago now. There's um, a bit... (laughs) Not a bit. There was a big gap between when we recorded our last show and and then when that got posted and now we're recording. So uh, these have long been sold, but I thought it was interesting that uh, a couple of uh, uh, Bob Bishop's pieces of hardware ended up on on, uh, eBay. There was an Apple II language card and a 16K memory card, which I assume went with one of his original uh, Apple IIs.
1: Yeah, I wonder if, if these are out of the same machine. I wonder if it would have been nicer if someone had kept them all together, but uh, so so be it, I suppose.
2: Yeah, yeah, I know that uh, you know, we talked about John Romero and, and his wife and friends going up and rescuing a lot of the hardware, so maybe these were just spares they found in the closet that uh, John missed, or they, they said, oh, we've got enough of those and sell those on eBay. I'm not sure, but it uh, looks like this was being sold by uh, a power user on eBay. Uh, I got 13,000-some sales, so I'm sure it was a, they probably do estate liquidations, things like that. And I know that Bob was also a huge collector of Disney comic books, and, and all of those ended up on eBay as well. Same fashion as a, a estate liquidation. So hmm.
1: I suppose that's what happens to us nowadays, <laughs> eh? We pass away, and our life's work ends up on eBay. <laughs> yeah, have being thrown away, I guess. I suppose. You can't take it with you, so... <laughs> All right, well, shall we move on to Weird Gaming? Sure.
0: You know Choplifter, you know Load Runner, but do you know this? It's time for a Weird Game.
1: All right, I'll start this month. So uh, as our listeners have probably noticed, uh, Weird Gaming, uh, we don't always cover games that one would describe exactly as weird. Uh, well, <laughs> mics have been sufficiently weird. Uh, my games, some of them are weird and some of them are more just... Uh, Games that Quinn feels like talking about, and then rationalizes as being weird in some way. Uh, But it's our podcast, and we'll do what we want.
2: Should we have uh, Kelly uh, re-record the intro? (laughs) That's right. Games that that Quinn feels like talking about. Now it's
1: time to talk about a weird game and whatever else Quinn feels like talking about. (laughs) <laughs> all right so i'll take credit for ruining the segment <laughs> uh, but we're, we will press on so uh, the game that i want to talk about this month uh, is called sundog and i really hope everyone out there knows it but if not uh, i feel like this is a totally totally amazing game that never really got its due and uh, like that's kind of maybe why i want to uh, categorize it as weird um you know everybody knows you know like, like the bumper says, uh, Choplifter and Loadrunner Runner and, and so forth, but uh, I almost never hear anybody talk about Sundog in the Apple II community. Uh, you know, retro gamers often talk about Elite, uh, the uh, probably spiritual predecessor uh, to Sundog, a space exploration game in a large procedurally generated world, uh, but Sundog is just head and shoulders above that game in every way, it really is. Uh, It's a fantastic looking game, Uh, the engineering in it is amazing, it has a full graphical user interface uh, that you use with your joystick. Uh, The depth is amazing, you know, you fly your ship, you run around on the planets, you go into buildings and bars and you talk to the locals, and uh, the depth and breadth of this game both are hard to imagine uh, on an 8-bit Apple II. Uh, It's a 1984 release. Uh, It was actually shown at the uh, West Coast Computer Fair in 1984. Uh, It's under the banner of FTL Software by a fellow named Bruce Webster. Yeah, I can't say enough good things about this. Um, I will link to the disk image on virtual Apple. It does run. It's a little bit funky to play without a proper joystick, so I would definitely recommend uh, playing this on real hardware. Have you played this one, Mike? Uh, No, I haven't. Oh wow! Well, you are missing out. So I'm run right out and do that. You yes, definitely run, don't walk. It's uh, yeah, it's a it's a very deep game, and it might benefit from uh, a reading of the manual as well, because there's a lot going on. You know, you start out inside your spaceship, and you have to fix it. Uh, you have to go and scavenge parts to re-repair your engines and so on. So there's. A lot going on that may not be immediately obvious without uh, without the manual, so I would probably recommend that. Uh, yeah, the other uh, interesting modern connection is uh, the name of the company I didn't realize was FTL Software until I was researching this item. Hmm. And uh, FTL is a, a current uh, iPad and Mac and PC game that uh, you can play. And it is an excellent, excellent uh, space uh, simulation type game as well. <laughs> so a small world, I guess. Uh, so definitely, uh, yeah, go, especially on the iPad, the iPad version is, is outstanding. If you like uh, space uh, combat kind of games, uh, go, go play FTL. Well,
2: I believe FTL is also the company probably uh, better known, I guess, for, for Dungeon Master.
1: That's right, yeah. They did also do Dungeon Master, yeah. And
2: they have that, that little swoosh opening that, that always reminds me of the uh, warp. Yes, yeah. The <laughs> swoosh. Yeah, good memory, yeah. I'm actually looking right now at Bruce, uh, Bruce, Bruce F. Webster's uh, blog, mm-hmm. his web page, and he has a, an entry about somebody named uh, Wayne Holder who's looking at cre- uh, recreating uh, Sundog for the modern computing platforms. Uh, I guess there at one point there was a... a project called Sundog Resurrection that was going to do sort of uh, this, but it's been long dormant. Nobody's touched that in a while. So uh, Bruce is, is posting about Wayne's plans here. And as I'm looking at Bruce's webpage, actually, he uh, over on the uh, there's an about section for him. And he has a 303 area code, which means he's here in Denver somewhere. Uh, so, Bruce, I'm coming to knock on your door and interview you. <laughs> Excellent.
1: Yeah, it looks like there was a, there was an attempt to open source uh, produce uh, a new version of Sundog at one point. But yeah, as most, frankly, open source projects do, it sort of fizzled. And then uh, I guess Bruce himself got busy. He was supporting the project and then got busy. And, uh, but sounds like he might be back in it again. I'm not sure. So uh, I hope it's true because it's, yeah, this is a game that deserves to live again. It, it really is, uh, really is a gem.
2: Great. Well, I'm gonna go play that then.
1: Awesome. Do you have a weird game for us, Mike?
2: I don't. No, not this month. Um, I have a list of weird games that I do want to talk about, but I just ran out of time and didn't get to research properly. So.
1: All right. Well, let's uh, let's do some feedback, shall we?
0: Sounds good to me. You've listened to us talk. Now it's time to tell us what you think.
1: Uh, the first one I've got here is from a listener, Herbert, who has ri- written in uh, many times before. We'll call him friend of the show, Herbert, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, regarding the new bumpers, he uh, approves. Uh, thank you very much, Herbert. I'll pass that along to Kelly, who is awesome. Let's see. In uh, episode 45, we talked to uh, Mark Kriegsman, and he mentioned that the 2GS didn't have the same game port as the 8-bit versions. Uh, of the Apple II, and uh, he's asking, is the 16-bit internal game port that the GS has uh, the same? And actually, that's a really good question that I don't know the answer to. Uh, I assume that it is, but they did have a habit of tweaking little signals here and there, because I know that the game port on the Platinum 2E is slightly different. There's one signal that doesn't work the same way or something. I forget the
2: details there. Do you know about this, Mike? I don't know about the the 2GS port, whether that's the same. Um, I came... As I've said before I came to the 2gs sort of late in the game and picked one up at uh, at a, a thrift store I haven't had the need to plug a, anything into that port so I yeah I don't I don't know the answer to that I do know that you know the, the platinum 2e they did a lot of things different on that to try and reduce chip count and, and stuff and they put that resistor pack in there that sort of messes with a certain scientific gear that's sensitive to to RFI and they wanted to quiet it down I guess is that
1: yeah, that sounds familiar. And I think in the process, uh, they disabled one of the enunciator lines or something that uh, nobody except hackers were using <laughs> or something. So yeah, I imagine um, you know if any kind of regular 2GS or regular Apple 2 uh, joysticks or paddles or anything would definitely work on the GS. I'm sure it's compatible to that degree. Uh, whether it has all of these same you know enunciators and everything that the 2E does, I'm not certain. I'm sure we'll get email about that, letting us know. There's so lots of people out there much smarter than us who just don't don't happen to have microphones. All right, so he goes... Well, they can't be that
2: smart. Right? <laughs> well, uh,
1: if if intelligence were measured by the amount uh, of, of talking that people do, then uh, our country would be in much better shape, perhaps. Uh, I would be so smart. <laughs> That's right. All right, so Herbert goes on to uh, uh, ask about the strobe lines that we talked about also with Mark. Uh, I had mentioned that uh, some third-party companies had used that back in the day for multiplexing joysticks. Herbert asks if that if project info on that is available. I don't uh, I don't know of any current you know projects to do that, but I know that there were devices uh, back at the time that did multiplex the game port, uh, and I'm speculating that they did it with uh, the strobe line as part of that, but I'm not certain. Um, so when he asks if there's any s- software that supports that, and I believe that there was, but I don't know off the top of my head. I seem to recall you know possibly some of the uh, epics games or something did support multiple joysticks uh, but i'm really not sure uh let's see oh in and, and episode 46 mike you had asked about the origins of the original focus uh, hard card is that right um probably <laughs> according to herbert you had asked uh so apparently that uh, in fact was designed by burger becky who is the keynote speaker at uh, kansas fest this year uh it's a small community and uh Everything comes around again, so that's very cool. We'll have to ask her about that uh, at Kansas Fest. Very exciting stuff. All right, so moving along, uh, let's see. Famous uh, 3D printer in the (laughs) Apple II community, uh, Charles Mangan, uh, writes in uh, to talk about the uh, Jobs movie. He's got an interesting perspective on uh, the sort of uncanny valley uh, theory uh, of casting. So we had uh, talked about how, we've talked a lot about how Michael Fassbender doesn't look as much like Jobs as, say, Ashton Kutcher did. But, uh, he suggests that actually maybe that's a good thing uh, because it's sort of uh, more distracting if they look a lot alike, but then if the acting isn't as good. So it's almost better to, if you're going to aim for that and slightly miss, that's worse than just not even trying to hit that look exactly. Uh, so I think the he's... lesson here is never try. <laughs> I think well, I think he's onto something there, but yeah, that, well, that was the worst possible interpretation of that, Mike. <laughs> and this is why you're the hate sponge. That's right. <laughs> All right. So last uh, email I have here is from uh, another listener, Herbert, and uh, yeah. Herbert says, uh, Mike and Quinn, despite the fact that I am and always have been an Atari guy since 1980, Bu Atari, uh, he enjoyed uh, last month's episode. <laughs> Uh, The interview with Jason Scott was tremendously interesting. He is a tremendously interesting guy, so I can see why you would feel that way, Herbert. Uh, Especially hearing him expound on his philosophy regarding documentary filmmaking, as well as the information about the trove of Infocom data and the drama surrounding all of that. Yeah, I think that was possibly everyone's favorite part of uh, Jason's uh, story there, was the Infocom drama. Uh, so, on another note, he uh, mentions my tech segment where I talked about uh, scroll, scroll, scroll and uh, crazy cycles and how those work by um, keeping track of where the scan line is uh, by counting the cycles in your code. And uh, he mentions uh, an excellent book, which I also, yeah, I definitely should have mentioned. Uh, So thanks for bringing this up, Herbert. There is an excellent book on programming the Atari 2600, Atari, called uh, Racing the Beam. And uh, I actually have this book on my bookshelf uh, right next to me. Uh, It is an excellent book. It really describes uh, a lot about this process. So for anyone who doesn't know, the Atari 2600 was programmed that way. Uh, There was no video memory on it at all, Uh, you literally, there was, the video was a single register, you literally changed the color of the electron beam as it flew across the screen, so something, you know, like 80 or 90% of the CPU was occupied with just keeping the the video on the screen. So uh, it's really quite amazing that those games did anything at all, never mind, uh, you know, the incredible things that they did towards the end. You know, think about that next time you look at a screenshot from Pitfall, you know, or some of the really amazing 2600 games that exist. uh, There is not a single byte of video memory. It's literally uh, racing the beam, as they say. So, uh, yeah, thanks for mentioning that, Herbert. Uh, It's a great read, even if you're not uh, an Atari person, Buatari. Atari. Uh, That's the last uh, email I have. Mike, do you have any feedback for us?
2: Uh, well, mostly people just send me screeds about how much they don't like me, mm, yeah. which may or may not, you know, have to do with Open Apple. You know, the ones that I get from you don't generally go into Open Apple. It's just general, you know. I don't like you because of this.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that's, and he's just talking about my emails, folks. That's
2: right. I get several of those a day just from Quinn alone. <laughs> that's right. I was sitting at work, and suddenly it occurred to me: I don't like you, and here's why.
1: So it's, it's a healthy outlet for me, I find. Sure.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's what I'm here for. I am here to absorb all of your. Your your healthy outletting. <laughs> well,
1: I can't I can't poke fun at you know Commodore and Atari all the time, so <laughs> gotta have gotta have a third outlet.
2: Uh, we do have one last minute news item that actually just kind of popped up uh, yesterday or the day before and been all over the place. So I don't know that we need to get all that deep into it. Uh, a woman dropped off a a bunch of stuff at a, at a recycler, and one of those things that she dropped off turned out to be an Apple One. And the recycler sold it for two hundred thousand dollars, and is looking for her now because their policy is, I guess, to split the money with her. So if she shows up, uh, then she'll get a hundred grand.
1: Yeah, this is—I'm uh, sure everyone's seen the story a hundred times by now. I certainly have. Uh, the news outlets are all over this one because of the obvious drama. Uh, but yeah, it's an interesting, I guess, uh, so little story. I'm glad that they're splitting the money with her. That's—that's uh, that's nice of them. I. It would be nicer if they gave her all of the money, uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I suppose uh, possession is nine-tenths of the law and all true. that.
2: Yeah, that's true. Wouldn't, I guess, i have had to give her anything if they didn't want to. <laughs>
1: yeah. So, yep, that's breaking news as we record, and uh, yeah, can't let that one go by without commenting it. So now you've heard it from yet another news source.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know you're an Apple II fan when you open your... Your email and like half the half the day's messages are about this and then you go to Facebook and your feed is just filled up with ver- versions of this story from different news outlets.
1: All right, well, on that note, uh, I think that about does it for this month. Is that right?
2: Yep, that uh, should do it. And uh, of course, we'll be... Looking forward to Kansas Fest and seeing everyone there. For I sure. We'll have one more show before then, but uh, yeah, that's that's kind of a big summer event.
1: Yeah, and we hope to see you all there. And uh, as always, if you have any questions or comments for us, you can reach us at feedback at open-apple.net. And until next time, thanks for listening.
2: Thank you, Tony, for coming on, and uh, we'll see you all next month. Bye, everybody.
0: This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Subscribe to us in iTunes or visit us at open-apple.net, where you can browse our extensive catalogue of past episodes or read our blog. If you like what you've heard today, or even if you didn't, your comments, questions, or ideas are always welcome. Send them to feedback at open-apple.net.
2: It was was my favourite thing to play with. Is that right? Yeah, well, not, not... I'll know what that Go, go on.
1: <laughs> I'm just gonna dial nine one and I'll wait for you to finish. <laughs> so you had one of these and you played with it?